right? But I always can't say it right. But we uh, we led the session through that book uh, last year. Um, so the session studied that together, and it really and, and it led to a revision of our job descriptions. Um, and I'll present those to you. Uh, towards the end of the day. But that's what you're reading. I wanted to put that in context, that you are reading a book that really I think is probably, I, I, I don't know of a better book on the eldership that's a contemporary book. Um, you got the Sammy Miller, of course, ruling elder, but um, it doesn't get, you know, it's amazing. It's, and I hope that you got to read the qualifications uh, portion that I gave you. Just I felt like I had to get, get you in touch with Sammy Miller who's had such a huge impact in American Presbyterianism on this topic. Um, so you've read those books, but those, so we're going to do those, and that's really the, the, the gist or the most of the content of what we're doing. Uh, what I'd like to do is deal with the elf in the room before we get there, because it, it should women be in this room studying a book like that. And so I do want to address that issue, and um, I think it's an important issue today. Really, it's increasingly important. Um, not not just because of the the issue per se, though it's very important for that. Uh, you're talking about half of, of, of the body of Christ here, and and the privileges and responsibilities and rights that that half should you know has for one for those who Christ has died, and we just can't take that seriously enough. You know, it's it's a very serious thing. Uh, to in any way oppress or to any way diminish um, the birthrights of a child of God. You know, so uh, so we, we take we we should take that seriously always. We have a whole chapter in our confession on the li- liberty of, of uh, it's called Christian liberty, and it really starts off. One of the things that it, it starts off and talks about there is just how you know the the, the sin really of of allowing human uh, authority to oppress Christians in ways that Christ set them free. So he died. He set people free uh, from the uh, doctrines of man. And so whenever we talk about issues, sometimes we, we lose sight of that. That No, we are fighting. We are guarding that which Christ was willing to suffer for and die for, which was to set humanity free from the doctrines and commandments of men when it comes to their spiritual conscience. So in some ways, don't lose sight of that. Well, though, This is not about culture war, um, per se, though it is there. This is not about politics. This is not about denominational politics. This is about the meaning of Christ's sacrificial death for women. And, 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 uh, and being careful always to preserve the liberty that Christ died to procure for us. And we would do this for any group and any people. And we do it for all Christians, of course. So uh, that's sort of the context here. But it is a big so it is a big issue and I don't want it I don't I don't want it to be an issue that's just about women. That's my point. It's about Jesus Christ and his church and his government. And so um, so that's a big issue. Of course, secondarily, it is political. Um, you know, just to put it in context, um, you know, I, I would say it's probably, I mean, this is my opinion. I, I, well, to get into denominational politics is always hard because there's layers, different layers. And um, there's a cultural layer. And, you know, people can judge the denomination by 
you know, is there a is there a gospel centered culture in this denomination, and is there a culture where there is a genuine freedom and excitement to study in scriptures and to let our consciences be bound in those scriptures? And you know, sometimes these issues come up, whether it's you know women in ministry, whether it's gay lesbian issue, whether it's slavery back in the nineteenth century. You, you got all sorts of issues, and um, and and those issues. They are the issues, but they're but but they they beg other issues, and that's the nature of all these bases. So I'm trying to help you understand what's happening whenever we talk about issue. There, there's the issue of well, what what you know, who should be governing the church, and does that include women? Um, but there's also the issue of hermeneutics, how we read scripture, what's what's what does it mean to study scripture? Um, there's the issue of to what degree is this conversation being uh, manipulated by culture wars so that now there's another Lord ruling over us, whether it's a red or blue Lord, but there's a Lord. And that to me is probably the most uh, hideous and most prominent is so often that you see in church history, and you know, I've studied it a little bit, especially in the American context. And what's particularly sad to me is to see the way the church becomes pawns of political uh, polarization and political opportunism. That, that just, excuse me, you know, pisses me off. Uh, with the, the Church of Jesus Christ would lower herself so low as to be puppy dogs panting at the at the feet of one or another socio political party or or reaction to a socio-political party. You, don't, you hear what I'm saying? That I want you to hear the love of Jesus Christ in, the, in my statement. I want you to hear the love of the church in the statement. And by God, you know, I pray, God, this church will not succumb to the huge temptation that will come into these doors through well-meaning Christians. That's where all the temptation of churches come historically. You can read it over and over and over again. Um... Well-meaning Christians, weak Christians, I'm going to say, not wicked Christians, but Christians who just can't discern the difference between the church of Jesus Christ that is to transcend all nations and the nations themselves. So uh, we're sitting here, and I just, you know, just kind of remind you what we believe. There is no American flag in this church, and there never will be, or I quit. Um, there is no agenda here to save America as a distinct, separate, special entity or something like that. There is always an agenda to save the world. And there's always an agenda to, um, you know, we pray for God. Certainly, as the church gets its act together and preaches and proclaims the gospel, there's no doubt that it will have a secondary effect of transforming culture. And so we're all for that. But transforming culture is not our first goal. Our first goal is to make disciples and to build the kingdom of God. And so so I want, I say all that because whenever we, and, and I don't usually have this level of conversation with people here, as you know, because it just begs too many questions. But you're sitting here, many of you, thinking about being elders or WLB leaders. And man, it's time to start talking like this to you and realizing just how wrong and dangerous and downright seductive um, culture wars can be 
to the demise of the Church of Jesus Christ. So, what we got to do here is, is this is just a great example of that, though in some ways, now I've made this great dramatic intro, um, but in the end of the day, let's put it in perspective as well. Um, it's not the only issue. <laughs> and even if a denomination, um, you know, errors on one side or another, one of the things I take comfort in and discomfort in both is that oftentimes our practices are not as consistent to our ideology. Uh, and you'd say, well, Preston, you're a principal guy. I know. Wouldn't that bother you? Well, yeah, it does, but I'm kind of glad sometimes it doesn't. Because oftentimes you'll come out with an ideological rhetoric, but there's an intuition in, in people, and there's an intuition in church that if you were to practice it that way, it would be downright crazy. So let me give you an example. Um, we can talk, if you hear the, the ideological divides and debates on the women in ministry issue or women in leadership, you know, it, it can come out, especially in our denomination, I think, and others like it, they're trying to be faithful to scripture but, or conservative. It can come out so black and white and clean that, you know, women are to be in submission to men and men are to be heads of their homes. And you start, and, and, it would, and if you start to work this, the way it starts to get framed out, it would feel unbiblical for a father to sit down with a wife in the bedroom and have a collaborative and work together about how to rule the house, how to rule the home. You, I mean, can you imagine any healthy family where fathers and mothers aren't genuinely exercising authority jointly in the life of their children? And whereas the husband is, you know, if, if, if you believe in headship, is, has a headship role, a, lead, a, 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 a place of leading uh, in, in that regard, um, and authority even, you, you, you could argue, um, would you really work that authority out where, there, you know, the husband takes a, you know, you're, you're not a head, it's none of your business, or you're not a head, don't talk to me, or... Talk to me, but I'm not going to really have any submit one to another attitude here. It's just going to be, I'm going to listen, and give me your debate, then I'm going to ask you to leave, and I'll, I'll get in my prayer closet and pray, and I'll make a decision and come out of it and tell you what it is. I mean, if, if I can't imagine a family acting like that. <laughs> it would be unwise to the max, and it would violate all sorts of scriptures that you see. But that's what you would get if you just took this clean, nice, neat ideology sometimes. So, so in some ways, a lot of what we're going to do is be addressing this issue because I want us to at least go back to some scripture to see some. And on one hand, I want you to see a little bit how difficult the issue is. It's not so clear as the typical culture war within the denominations make it out to be. And it gives you a sense of, and well, you know, a take home could be, well, Cody is interesting, by the way. Cody, uh, everybody knows Cody now, right? He's been coming. By the way, do y'all feel tired? Some of y'all feel tired around here? Yeah, we had a late night last night. Oh, boy. Well, Cody's making us feel like wimps. What time did you get this morning to get here? 3.30. Yeah, 3.30. He's driving to get here. Isn't that amazing? And uh, Cody is one, and I want you to hear this, Gary, because you're so responsible for this. How many sermon series have you listened to here? I'm most of them. I mean, I. That's amazing. I. It was three years ago, I think, when we, when I did the reformed ecclesiology and polity class with you, and um, so I subscribed to the podcast and listened to all the sermons. And when I got more caught up and was bored, I went amazing. back and started from the beginning and started listening through the 
the sermon series is well, uh, this this church is a is really a wonderful uh, breath mm, of fresh air mm, um, for me in a, mm, in a very different context where there's a lot of dead churches mm-hmm. and uh, so. I well, we're going to pray for Upper State New York. I'm, you're really putting the heart, putting that in my mouth. <laughs> I want you to know, I'm hearing you, we got the week to, to cry that situation. And but Cody's not the only one, by the way. There there are quite a few people around really the world. Um, I know there's someone in Zimbabwe doing it. And, and um, so thank you, Gary, and for those who make that possible. But you listened to this sermon on women, and what was your take home? Um, especially from my background, uh, and I'll just give you a, a very brief uh, background. I, I'm from a very conservative church. Uh, I was a member there for 17 years, and I've moved on. I'm now in the PCA. But um, when I say conservative, I actually mean in the political um, the political sense, as you as you were mentioning, and uh, I was a campus leader there for a, a number of years, and it was during Obama's first election that, you know, I, I of course didn't think that it was my job as a campus leader to try to persuade students one way or the other, but wasn't shepherding the people as. Um, much as people in the church thought that I ought to, um, you know, of course, to vote for, uh, you know, George Bush. And in some of the the conversations I had with individual people was kind of saying, well, I think that some of the things Obama's bringing up might be right, you know, smart ideas and whatever. And again, I wasn't endorsing anyone. I was just trying to be a little bit broader in my thinking and a little bit big-minded. Well, there was a number of people in that church who organized to try to get me fired from doing the campus ministry um, because of that very thing. And so I I say this to to say I'm used to having a, a, a background where we allow politics to invade the church and to um, do church the way that we do politics, which is to try to organize things very neatly into this category or this category. We we like to have things be yes or no answers, and um, what ends up happening both in politics and in church when we try to do this is we start giving answers that are just too simplistic. And um, I really appreciated in, in the sermon that you did on, on women in leadership how you were willing to say we're not going to give the simple answer just so that we can all pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, I'm towing the conservative line. I'm not going to say anything that raises an eyebrow and makes people question whether or not we believe in, you know, what the Bible teaches or we're theologically conservative, that we're willing to um, even step on people's toes if this is what the Bible teaches and just be be willing to not state things overly simplistically. Well, thank you. Yeah, he just mentioned, hey, I'll listen to the sermon. So let's, let's let him open up with that, see what he got from us. So some of you were here when, I'm sure, most of you were here when I did that. So maybe you remember. So this is a review for those of you who were part of the sermon. 
I gave you the sermon notes unedited. Um, they're very rough, and they assume oftentimes things I would know that I they were for me, so I didn't put in writing things that I already knew that or that I didn't need to be reminded of. And so you know, it's 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 cursory, if you will, but it's um, but it's there for you. So if you'll turn to that, and then what I want us to do is is um, open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your church. We thank you for it is your your ascension power manifest in the flesh today. That's a loaded, loaded phrase, and it means so much, but it especially means that you are alone, ought and ought to have exclusive authority. Uh, it is your power and dominion and your lordship. And as we read in first uh, in, in Ephesians one and and that you have been made head over all things unto the church. And so, Father, we pray for that lordship now. That we would do what all good Bible students must do. What all good church leaders must do. We must become deaf to our culture. We must uh, abstain from, from playing into whatever might be opportunistic culturally or, or politically. And we must, Lord, be faithful. To be honest about what your scriptures teach, uh, and where there is ambiguity, we would, Lord, want to be faithful to your ambiguity. Um, if in fact that's true, keep studying, keep learning, trusting you've given us enough in scripture to be faithful to pr- in practice. But, but Lord, there is mystery, and uh, we just pray God that we would even endorse and affirm that where it's true. And so, God, be with us now, and uh, we pray in Christ's name, Amen. So I think popping in and get a little further away. So as as uh, Cody just said, one take home will be hopefully, I think it would be a very severe error, both an error relative to church history, but even in Scripture, uh, for this issue to be discussed as if we're discussing orthodoxy. I think orthodox, and what, well, there is an orthodox position on I suppose, but but uh, there's no doubt historically, but also biblically, that I think this would not be, to me, an issue of subscription in order to say who's in and who's out of a faithful position, of a faithful uh, theology. I really can't say that enough. Um, I mean, when I'm citing people like B.B. Warfield, and I'm citing people like Calvin, and I'm citing people like the Didache of 100 A.C., and I'm I'm citing... Theologian after theologian today, from John Stott to David Wells to, you know, on it goes, um, who have a different position than we do in this church. Um, it, it would be paramount to schismatic wrongness for me to, to de facto say, you know, you're, you're, you can't be orthodox because of your position here. Now, they, all of those I've just cited have nuances. All of them have some very... You know, interesting things to say, but just let's just. I say that though, because okay, take a deep breath, guys. You know, uh, you're not you're not going to get in trouble if you look at this and say, okay, let's look at it. Um, you know, this is an issue that I think we have to be honest about. So, with that being said, let's look. Um, I've already done some introduction stuff, so I want to move beyond that. And uh, so, I'm going to skip all that introduction stuff. You can look at it later. Um, so go to the exposition, and um, let's just uh, remind ourselves of what the text was that I was referring to here. Um, Titus 2, would someone read that? It's sitting there in your notes. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, 
are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be revived. All right, so there's a lot there. Um, just notice a few observations. Again, I'm not going to go into the sermon. All, I'm not doing the sermon all over again. I'm just going to say, notice a few things. Remember this. Um, this likewise is really quite significant because it keeps showing up when there are instructions given uh, to officers. Uh, you see it in First Timothy 3, as I make note here. Um, so the question is, is it likewise, as in he's talking about the context of elders here, is it likewise women elders? Or is it likewise women? And what I remind you of here is the word gunitas for women in the Greek is also the same name you would use for wife. So is this a, of an elder, let make sure their wives act accordingly? Or is this uh, elder woman? Um, that's where we get started here. Notice the immediate context. Um, in Titus 1.5, I left you in Crete so that you might put that which remain in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, you know, then you have verse 6 through 9 and you begin to hear about this overseer or pastor episcopon description of, uh, you know, you talked about unsound doctrine. So pretty quickly you're starting to think, oh, maybe he's, a, he's an apostle church planner and he's there to set up pastors as well as so in our minds, we think of teaching elders, ruling elders going on here and what's happening with that. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, you see the overseer pastor, um, which seems to correspond to the elder pastor in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 10. And especially, you know, uh, I'm just kind of reminding you of some of the context there. You hear the uh, presbutas, uh, elder masculine, same word is used there in 1 Timothy 3, 8. Um, or, or could be referring from 1 Timothy 5.17 to 1 Timothy 3.8, the deacon elder, or older men. Or it could just be, hey, older men, no office. But then again, what's this appoint? That doesn't sound like just, hey, you go and appoint men to be older men. It's, it seems much more right. That it's, and most people affirm that this is an office. So the passage could be read to be two offices, one elder as, a, as assuming the possibility of women elders, question mark. Note then again the second immediate context, household instructions. So you see where this gets in view. And on the one hand, we're clearly in the context of appointing out, out offices. I think that's pretty clear from verse 5. But then on the other hand, you have these household instructions. Likewise, but the time applied to younger women, men, servants. In other words, we get into all the other various roles of the household of that day. So again, it seems now to be focused on household instructions. Um, whatever is the case, we do know that the household spirituality, if you will, uh, it was clearly related to or corresponds to the spirituality of the church. The church itself is called a household of God. Um, oftentimes, that's one of the main arguments for women and men distinctions and roles in the church is the fact that the church, and I won't go through and prove that now, but the church throughout history is, is the family of God. And so the first family, Adam and Eve, is the first church. 
And it's from the family, uh, institutionally, that the church emerges. And therefore, there's always been a link between the economy or the organization of the family, if I could use that term, and the church, insofar as they are both households of God. Um, so you begin to see that, okay, it would make sense, even if Paul were to... So here we have what seems to be Paul exhorting Timothy to set in order an organization, that is, to organize the church of Crete. To organize it, they do there what we do today. You're you're a mission church until you have elders and pastors. And that seems pretty clearly what's going on. Um, Go in there and organize the church. Doing what we're going to do this weekend, for instance, in Danbury. We're going to go, we're going to uh, have, we're going to appoint an elder, we're going to appoint someone who now is an evangelist, pastor, to become a pastor. That's going to happen this Sunday. And um, and so that's really what we see happening here in Crete. Um, and and yet, as we see in other passages like this, uh, the household uh, instructions concerning the household is is appropriate as well for the church. So there's some relation there. Um, let's see what else I want to point out here. It is interesting, by the way, another part of this household, the way in which elders are often referred to as fathers. And these women are going to be referred to as mothers in the church. So spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers. Um, But it remains unclear. On the one hand, there is a role distinction in the household. But on the other hand, their own husband seems to suggest that they are not necessarily to submit to other husbands, presumably some of which are church elders. So how do we play that into the into the context? Um, I would be opposed, you know. And I've heard some churches do this that you know there's a kind of men generally have authority in the church, and I don't see anything in the scripture about that. Uh, the only the only role of authority comes under an office. So I will say later that uh, we we all agree I think on this that that uh, men in this church have no more authority or less than women, and vice versa. Um, It's only elders, those who have the hands laid upon them, and who assume the office that has authority more than others. So so the question still remains, are women uh, allowed to that office or not? But you you see the distinction there. In other words, if someone would come to me and say, as they have, Pastor, I have a problem with women reading scripture and worship. I said, well, why is that? Well, because they're women and they're supposed to be in submission to men. I said, well, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where, where all women are supposed to be submitting to all men. I see Scripture saying that a wife is supposed to be submitting to her husband and that a congregant or a younger younger Christian men and women are to be submitting to their father or older, elder, office holder Christian which we call an elder, right? You see the difference? So if you're going to make the case that there, as Westminster did, for instance, they believe that only the word of the minister, the pastor, should be able to read Scripture publicly. Um, and if you were to hold a distinction and say, well, who can read Scripture on Sunday biblically? Um, I'd say, well, if you're going to say that it's anything beyond the people of God, um, find that in Scripture, but, but specifically, if you did, and if there was an argument to be made, which there is, Westminster made it, it's exclusive to the office of elder. Or they even said teaching elder. You all follow me here? 
I know I'm kind of trying to rush through this, but I'm just trying to give you some categories. So, so if, if you were to argue that Peggy can't read Scripture, you would also be writing that Jesse can't read Scripture because you don't hold the office of elder. That's what we'd say. So you've got to make that decide, decision. Now, by the way, how did we make that decision? Well, you all know. We have women and non-ordained people reading Scripture. Why do you think we do that? Anybody guess? How do we get away with that? Well, that's true. There were the, script, the choice of Scripture is under the submission of the church. That's right. It's governed by elders. But it's also because we had to distinguish, is this an exercise of authority? Something we're going to get into in a minute. There's another tradition in the church. Remember, you know, even in the Episcopal Church, right, where you, the, the Word belongs to the people and you walk the Scripture through the people and then the Gospels are read amidst the people, I believe, normally. Isn't that right? By the clergy. By the clergy, but it's in the, they, yeah, it yeah, brings it into the congregation. It used to be yeah. uh, they had an office of lay reader. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to read the lessons, you, right. you should, we're supposed to be a lay reader. Right. Licensed. But there it is. Yeah, yeah licensure doesn't come from That's we, we do the same thing. We don't call it licensure, but we definitely choose people who we think can read well. And often, I don't, I don't, I don't, the, the intent was always that they'd be key leaders. And I don't know. <laughs> I hope that's still happening, but it should. Um, Is there a comparison between uh, a woman leading song, leading in song, encouraging song? Yeah, they are getting some gray areas there, aren't we? There's more exercise of authority there if there's exhortations, etc. But if she's just singing, versus just singing. Well, heck, every every church I know in Christendom that would be on the hyper right on this issue has women singing in front of them, so. Uh, that, that would never even be contended, I don't think. Just about. You, you can take an exception, maybe? Uh, there's some that don't have lead singers. Well, that's true. I mean, if they had lead singers, yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, so just kind of laying the ground, doing it kind of quickly, I know. But how does this passage then get read? In the, hopefully you're reading it as I'm talking. You're getting a little more of the argument. So how does this passage get read in the context of other similar passages? And, of course, that makes you think of First Timothy 2. And um, and here's the big good. You know, do not permit a woman to teach and not exercise authority over a man. Now the big question there is in the Greek it's much more ambiguous than sometimes the English makes it because the English tend, tends to interpret that. You know, every translation is an interpretation. And um, is that you know let a woman learn quietly with submissions and, and I do not permit a woman to teach one. Or, separately, exercise authority. Or, is that read, teach authoritatively. That is, teach, i.e., kai, authoritatively. And so, that's, that's one of the big issues right here. But in the Greek, I can tell you, that is not determined. You have to look at the context. The word is not going to get you there. And so, that's important, because, um, you know, it can go different ways. And then, uh, and of course, clearly the issue here is about authority because it talks about let a woman quietly with all submissiveness, etc. So here are some questions. Is this addressing women in the church or women in the home? There, there we get back to that issue again. Wives, same Greek word for women, remember? Note here, woman is wife. Um, since it's universally agreed that 1 Peter 3, for instance, refers to marriage, if one allows Scripture to interpret Scripture, that is, if one allows what is clear to assist in the interpretation of what is less clear, the presence of so many 
striking verbal and conceptual parallels between 1 Peter 3 and 1 Timothy 2 offer strong support for the present interpretation that 1 Timothy 2 likewise concerns marriage. I put them down next to each other. And you see quite a lot of a parallel there. And um, But let's just keep going. And especially is it to teach or exercise authority over man as a neither or teach as to exercise authority over man. Now this is interesting. Does this mean can't teach a man or can't teach in a manner as to exercise jurisdictional authority over him, as in ruling? Note the very interesting parallel. Remember, we're talking about the family potentially here. This is family, though, might have relevance to the home. But I think there's a good argument here that this is the family. One can teach, prophesy, yet distinguish from jurisdictional authority. Um, Notice in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, to give this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of wife is her houses, and the head of Christ is God. And then it makes a distinction. Now, in that culture, this is a great example, by the way, of cultural issues. In that culture, a sign of authority, kind of like a robe, if, if you use it today in a sermon, in, in a preacher, was a head covering. Okay? Now, we don't believe that robes are necessarily prescribed to represent the authority of the office, but it could. And we don't believe in this this passage of a head covering, and I won't go into why, but there's great exegetical arguments on that, I promise you. Um, but we're not going to argue that women, you should be wearing women uh, head coverings right now. Um, but, but that's not the point. That was a cultural expression, if you will, in that day, of submissiveness. But what we are going to argue is that this passage speaks of submission, and that this passage, interestingly though, distinguishes between head covered versus head uncovered. And, it, and it's interesting then that both prophesy. Both, the covers and the uncovers, prophesy in, in this, later in this passage. You see what I'm saying? So there evidently, some would argue, a distinction between authoritative prophesying, preaching, and non-authoritative prophesying, teaching, in that distinction. Again, these are just passages. You've got to deal with them. I know it's getting murky, but that's the point. Um, again, what is cultural is head covering. What isn't cultural is male headship. So, so, so far, what are we, just some of these things. What's going on here? There is differentiating role in both the home and church. I mean, we're, we can't ignore the fact that in some ways it's like, well, duh, but there are passages that distinguish women and men in their roles. They're there. Um, this is a good chance for me to break off. I would say the two arguments, um, there are two hermeneutical um, sort of patterns that you'll see that I would say concern me and our tradition and those who are wanting to be faithful to the Sola Scriptura. One would be to hastily write off as cultural what isn't cultural. In other words, it's true that just like today, when we speak of humanity, still in many cultures, though it's becoming increasingly taboo politically, uh, socially, politically, but it's still true today that when we say man, the discerning ear will have to hear the context to discern whether you mean humanity or males. All right? Um, that was very true in the scripture. I'm going to show you this in a minute. We're going to really get you some good stuff here in a minute. We're just setting you up. Um, but even over in the Old Testament, you have that same 
thing going on where men are referred to, you know, where men, where both men and women can be referred to corporately as men. And we have one example of it, and, and the Old Testament is going to be very revealing because it deals with the issue of, of authority and prophesying. Um, so on the one hand, so, so that's one. That this, what is cultural and what's not? Well, the problem you'll see, and I'll get to it in a minute, is that clearly Paul is going to make his argument in a manner that transcends culture. He's going to say, this is, goes all the way back to the order of creation in Adam and Eve. That's not a cultural argument, is it? That's not. That's just the way we do it here in Greece. That's it's 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 encoded in the redemptive history that there is some distinction between men and women in their roles. So on the one hand, I'm very uncomfortable with writing. I would be very uncomfortable with writing the, that there is a distinction, and it has to do with submission and headship. It's it, it's impossible for me personally and biblically to write that off as a cultural context thing. So that's one argument. The other argument to me that's much more dangerous and ironically now is becoming much more prevalent. There's, it comes under different terms. Progressive hermeneutics, uh, trajectory hermeneutics. The idea goes like this. You start in Genesis, you go all the way through redemptive history. You do a biblical theology of a topic, which we do a lot of. I believe in that kind of exegesis. That part I like. You know, looking at trajectories from Genesis to Revelations and finding the patterns and, and recognizing what are sort of the, you know, those, how those patterns develop. It's, it's a novel approach, if you will. Novel in the sense of history's unfolding. And so you unfold with it to get clarity. That's fine. Here's the problem. In that hermeneutic, they're going to argue that, okay, so we're just going to continue that after Revelations. So the idea is there's really continuing. Uh, there, there's a kind of a there, there's no uh, historically distinct and concrete moment where all revelation has ceased, awaiting the yet the 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 next major redemptive epoch wherein there will be new revelation, i.e., the coming of Christ. So it's sort of like the same issue that you guys are struggling with over in the law school. You know this. How do we interpret the uh, Constitution and original intent, or what, what are those two original intent? Living Constitution. Living Constitution, exactly. That's basically the same argument. Uh, is this a living word? Well, yes, living, if you mean that God is still in with and through the ministry and preaching of the Word of God to, to do things in people's lives, etc. Absolutely, it's living. Is its meaning living? As in, moving still and adjusting. And so what they'll argue is, it'll, it'll go like this. It's true that as you move from the old and, and to the new, that the kingdom of God becomes more and more inclusive. I mean, we go from a distinct ethnic, we go from a distinct family to a distinct et- ethnicity to a, a distinct nation to now multi-nations, we go from women not receiving the sign of the covenant under the headship principle of, co- of circumcision given to all males, to women given the, 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 the uh, covenant you know, sign of baptism. So women become more included into the family household of God. We see that in that sense, at least, covenantally, by the sign. Um, and you can make other kinds of things. And so what is argued typically, and this is probably the most prominent among those that I know, that are otherwise you would say pretty orthodox thinking people, but it's very alarming to me because we're now 
toying with scripture and and the way it's it acts authoritative because if it's still living that is the meaning is still living not not the effect and power that's attached to it then where does it stop <laughs> you know where does it stop that you're going to say okay we see this arrow and it's pointing this way so we just keep going the more you know, and so you see that that's the argument that's being applied by neo-evangelical congregations with the gay-lesbian issue. That's the argument that prior to the, the gay-lesbian issue was being applied to, to the women issue. That's been settled in those groups by a long time ago. So do you all understand what I'm saying? Any questions about this? So, so before we go to this next part, just keep in mind that those are two hermeneutics that would um, say, okay, that was a cultural deal, we write it off, but no, if you're going to make that argument, you've got to go to the Scripture and find out if really it's cultural, because the Scripture will tell you. The headship is pretty clearly cultural. You'll, you'll get into it if, if you want. Um, but submissiveness and headship, I mean, the arguments are legion that it, it ties back to redemptive historical intentionality on the part of God. He the part that, that Paul said, basically, God intended the order of salvation to be the way it was. And therefore, there's a reason for it. Now, we're going to have to explain that later, but that's the question. Yeah. yeah. Um, my understanding, I can't remember the Greek word, but there are two uses for the Greek word uh, that we translate as being submissive. Mm. And one was a military use. Mm. Uh, the, the civilian use, the non-military use, had a strong connotation of uh, cooperation uh, in there, as a, as opposed to you know strict authority, chain of command, do it because I say to uh, yeah. to do it. And well, that that so, may be true. I don't know. I couldn't answer it. I, I don't know for. I haven't done yeah, a, a Blinds, semantic word study like that. Blind's dictionary, the New Testament, yeah. has that. Uh, well, let me make it clear how we would but, do this. But I think in in some of these cases, another variable is what was the meaning of that Greek word. And again, in the in the context, uh, husbands and wives right. be submissive to one another, be subject. To one another, to me, would in, indicate that that spirit of cooperation is what's being stressed, not that one has absolute authority uh, over the other, because they're saying it is equal. Okay, well, that's your opinion. Fair enough. Well, um, not just one. Well, well whoever, it's yours and somebody else's. But the point is, that's an opinion. Smarter than me. Right? No, no, I'm just saying that's an opinion, yeah. um, and that's fine. And I, I don't know. I can't speak to that issue yeah. of a word study. Uh, I can tell you how I would do a word study or not. Um, I would never do a word study based on the root uh, word, um, and not i.e. words don't work that way in societies. And so, most good New Testament scholars will teach you this that. Uh, What's the book? I don't know if Vines does this. I can't remember how they do their word studies, but uh, what's that lection of that um, concordance that everybody used to use? Strong. Strong. And it goes back and says, well, the root word is X. The root Greek word is X. It's derived from this the, the root of blank, therefore it means blank. I mean, that would be paramount to me saying uh, sick means you got a cold when everybody in my family now, kids, that is, Sick means cool. Um, you see, that's the way words are used. So you have to right. listen to a word. And so what you said, secondly, is very important, um, is that words must be interpreted within the context of, of the Scripture. 
and uh, we interpret scripture with scripture and within the context of its use in that day. So, fair enough. I, thankfully, the word you're describing is not the only word that's used in this issue, and there are many other words, and we'd have to look at those as well. But let's just for a minute take that aside because we get we could get to that point. Um, what I want to make sure you see is the hermeneutic issue, though. How we're, what we're not going to do is say that the Scripture's meaning is living, and therefore what was begun in a redemptive historical trajectory is just going to continue. Um, that's going to pretty much get you to every one of the, the things that we would be concerned about today. Because <laughs> um, that means now we, we allow modern science, quote-unquote, to interpret Scripture. We allow cultural norms to... to you know, we, this whole issue of gender and sexuality and all the social... It, social sciences start playing a major role in interpretation when you play that card. Because now what is our source of authority if it's beyond Scripture? You see, even... So what they're saying is Scripture gives me this impulse or this, oh, okay, we're looking for more and more inclusion through church history. Fine. But where does it stop? Bestiality, where does it stop? You could go anywhere, as long as culture feels comfortable with it. And that's the problem. So, to me, that's really dangerous. Very dangerous. I, I, I just can't even come close to endorsing that hermeneutic. Because it really, if you look at it, it absolutely neuters, neuters the lordship of Christ in Scripture. There is no lordship anymore. He's not speaking definitively anymore. Uh, if that hermeneutic is allowed, which is very dangerous. All right? And that's the only point I want to make. Yeah. It just strikes me that that is a good inference that you can take those, but not good if necessary. Yeah, yeah I would even, yeah. I hear it. I appreciate it, but I, man, I'm, I'm even more opposed to it. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, good. I mean, thinking of, sure, there's, there's passages that say creation proclaims the glory of God. It's like I can go out to sleep a giant and see. Well, there's no positive prescription to say, see this model. Yeah. And you apply it. Right. You know, so. Right. So I get into this whole head covering thing, number one. Number two, even if women were then vision as holding to a church office, well, let me, let me kind of do the therefores here. Um, there is headship principle as applied to a biblical household polity order, even as this is carried out over to apply to the household of God polity order. And yet, as per the redemptive role play, would the husband demand, and this is getting to your point, respect submission or use his authority to serve, protect, and care for his wife as Christ does the church? And would the wife, likened unto the church, respect and honor her husband insofar as he is tasked with imaging Christ to the church in the house? Her cooperation versus resistance and submitting to his imitation of Christ's calling, even as to imitate the calling of the church, again, for the sake of redemptive role play to the point the world of Christ and the church. You see what I'm raising here? I'm saying, hold it. What, what does submission mean? And what does it mean to play these roles? Because there's clearly a role play that we're playing. Clearly there's a role play. You just can't explain this away. And any interpretation that would do that, even if it were an interpretation, say, the word submission, where at the end of the day he's saying, well, well, there's really no difference between men and women. If you come to that, to me that would be very curious that you would do some word exercises that would lead you to a position of, well, there's really no use for any of these passages in the scripture anymore because it's really just saying we're all supposed to love each other and respect each other and submit one to another. Then why all this stuff that Paul's putting in here? You know, there is something else going on. But what is that something else? That's the, that's the question. And um, so look on the other hand, number two, even if women were then envisioned as holding to an office, 
say, the deacon elder, we would expect writers of Scripture living in a man-centered society to use man. Centered manners of communication, but distinguished from exercise, uh, uh, excluding women. Um, in other words, don't confuse anthrocentric or male-centric manners in communication that accord to the social uh, norms as then prescribing an absolute principle or law. And we know the example today. But notice, for instance, the example I give you, and I mentioned it earlier. Um, in the Old Testament, for instance, there are clear examples. Every text that offers a job description for an office is presented in an androcentric manner, precisely as is found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. This is so even when it is certain that the office in question did in fact permit women. For instance, um, the office of prophet in Deuteronomy 18, 14 through 22, and see also Deuteronomy 13, and the office of judge elder in Deuteronomy 16, 18, 17 through 13. We have prophetesses, we have women, el- uh, women judges, and yet they are, their job descriptions are given in male terms. And there's no judgment against, uh, what's her name? Deborah. Deborah, or some of these others. In fact, nothing but, I mean, she becomes a Christ image, interestingly enough. Um, so it raises the question, what does Scripture reveal about the place or identity and leadership roles of women in the church, both Old Testament and New Testament? Um, and here's where we go through a little bit of a, of a reminder. Clearly, we're not talking about, whatever we do, we're not talking about inequality. Women and men are clearly treated as equal in Scripture. Equal in the image of God. Equal in redemptive uh, importance. And that, by the way, was pretty radical for, for religions of that day. I mean, th- this was truly a feminist movement, you could argue, in the New Testament. Um, to, to speak like this. Um, Number two, as to women leadership in redemptive history, again, it is unquestioned that women were allowed by God and called to play very significant leadership roles. That is just indisputable. Um, You've got it all through the Old Testament. You've got it in the New Testament. I give you a bunch of names there. Miriam and Deborah and Hannah and Abigail and Hulda and Esther and prophetesses. and I mean, they're, they're all over the place. It's just almost ridiculous that anybody can argue that they're not there and that God hadn't called them to be there, and they exercise authority in some level. They do something that's, well, let's call it leadership. Um, and yes, you can you can start doing some somersaults with it, you know. but it's just there. That's all I'm making the point now. Throughout the New Testament scriptures, women are recognized and observed in their strategic roles within the apostolic church. Of course, one must remember Anna in Luke chapter 2, verse 36. Um, you know, the elect lady um, that John writes about. Uh, Esther, I mean, on and on it goes. Uh, I'll give you some examples there. Uh, Phoebe and, and her role. And, you know, what's interesting is literally the people are commanded to do whatever she says. I mean, he sends her and says, don't do whatever she tells you. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty a big deal. Now, what kind of authority was it, though? Was it jurisdictional authority, the kind that binds and looses? Was it that kind of authority, or was it organizational authority? Hey, she's taking up a collection, um, and I want you to do whatever she says to get this money together. You see, that's the very different kind of authority. I'm just all I'm doing right now is raising question after question to you, helping you observe some things a little more carefully. So, what kind of authority was it? She had it, but what kind of was it? There were the uh, uh, presbyteros or elder women in First Timothy five two and widows, if not the same class as elder women of verse nine in Titus two three. And their leadership role, the older women, either organized into boards or not. Uh, most most scholars, I think, believe there were recognized, appointed boards of women at the very least, and that's where we've gotten our WLB. Um, 
what were they elders? Were they assistant elders? Were they exclusively directed towards the ministry of women? Were they, uh, yes, uh, directed to the ministry of women, but insofar as the church has women in it, are they now assisting the elders in, in how they plan and develop and do ministry in the church? So if you, if you think about it, if, if women, Titus, it seems pretty clear, if they are older women, even if you just call them older women, not elders per se, or assistant elders, or even office name, if women are given the responsibility to disciple and to care for younger women, you know, similar to say what you would say a wife is supposed to do with children in the home, you know, assisting the husband, if that's the way you want to put it, though I wouldn't put it quite that way, I think they're more co-equal than that, but if you were to even say it that way, um, would you then have women in the room when decisions are being made about the house? Should we go on a vacation, honey, or not? And wouldn't that be a real conversation between relatively co-equal people? Uh, should we, uh, when should we do our family time? You know, when do we do this? How do we do this? In other words, when you start sitting down to organize your family, uh, and you have those who are appointed by God to be discipling these kids with you, i.e. your wife, wouldn't you sit in a planning session with your wife, husbands? And plan your home. Well, that's that's you see what's going on. And I'm raising these questions because these are almost like, well, duh. I know what y'all think. You're like, Preston, seriously? I mean, really? I mean, you're not involved in making decisions for your children, really? And yet, isn't it amazing? Even if you go to the hyper hyper position of male headship in a church, culturally, how much of that has been influenced culturally? where you have now elder boards all over America making decisions all the time and the only access that the church that the women have to that elder board is what I call the sinister way which is through pill- pillow talk I just hope to God that wife that pastor talks to him for me which is by the way the worst way to get to the pastor now you're involving family politics into the church politics you see what I'm saying? And so it's very interesting here that you have these, uh, these are scriptures. This is the word of God with these amazing passages and people not slammed. Phoebe's not, oh, well, we have to have Phoebe because no men. I've heard people say, well, you know, Phoebe did what she did because all the men were wimps. Well, scripture doesn't tell me that. I don't see anything in the scripture that says all the men were dropping balls and that's why we got Phoebe. But that's the kind of stuff people do just to fit a cultural agenda. And we've got to be careful. Let the scripture speak. So, depending on your interpretation of 1 Timothy 3.11, there was the strategic role of deacons, wives, deaconesses, which were, I mean, there's the debate. Are they deaconesses? Or are they deacons' wives? Are deacons elders? Or are deacons a third office of servant leaders? I mean, we've got so many questions emerging now, it's ridiculous. Um, one thinks of the women who evangelized the disciples concerning the resurrection of the Lord. Likewise, Mary Magdalene, uh, Johanna, and Susanna, and many other women ministered to Jesus. What does that mean? You could take that in a lot of ways. There were the women who joined with the apostles in the upper room for prayer and supplication in Acts 1. At the very least, that sounds like a family room to me. And my guess is that, you know, not, not my guess, they're doing a lot of strategic planning up in that room. I mean, we read this stuff so innocently, but you're sitting up in an upper room and you've got a major crisis going on. And they're praying and they're studying scripture and they are talking about, what do we do here? Do we go to the temple and still minister there? Do we do it outside the temple? 
Should we have this? How do we organize the people? There's all these people with needs. Remember Acts 2? They're, they're figuring out how to distribute those needs. And you're telling me the women were part of that conversation? In the upper room? Um, and then you see the strategic women, of course, I've mentioned it, the fellow workers that are listed in chapter 16. They're all called fellow workers. There's no distinction. There's a group of men and there's a group of women, and they're all called fellow workers. And why would we arbitrarily define some as doing less leadership than others? Where would we get that when you start looking at the whole scripture? Um, scriptures in support of women church leadership. 1 Corinthians 11, 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man nor man of women. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of women, and all things are from God. Acts chapter 2. And you see the, the, the vision that both women, men and women would prophesy. Again, there are ways you can interpret that redemptive historically to go this way, and there are ways you can interpret to go that way. Um, Numbers 11, uh, so Moses went out and told the peoples the word of God, and he gathered 70 men of elders of people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, looked some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. And then you go to Numbers 11, and you find out that women are part of this. Really? (laughs) Um, Joel, again. trying to go fast here, I'm sorry. What about redemptive history? Um, notice the uh, Didache here, the Apostolic Constitution, which we know came out of about 100 AD. Now again, church history is not authoritative. There were so many y'all, by the time you get to 100, I mean heck, there were so many apostasies before Paul was dead. I mean, that's what Second Corinthians is all about. <laughs> so you certainly can't say, oh, the earlier in history, the more orthodox. Don't ever make that mistake. Some people do that. That's just false, man. I don't want to go back to paganism. And that was first century. So we don't we don't do that. That's not the way we do scripture. Y'all hear that? That's a real popular thing to do. Is let's just the, the earlier we get in church history, the more orthodox it is. That's just not true. You got it right. I made that point. <laughs> Um, but having said that, uh, let's it, just seeing how this, these scriptures that we've talked about have been interpreted um, as early as 100 AD, um, you have certainly this passage, which is very interesting because it's talking about the presbytery. O bishop, you shall lay your hands upon her in the presence of the presbytery. Now, I want you to look at those words. Presbytery is what? We, we saw that last time. What's a Presbytery. The word presbyter, elder, a gathering of elders, an assembly of elders, a court of elders. So in the context of the presbytery, there were deacons and deaconesses. Now, what were these deaconesses? Um, what did they do? Were they, so it seems here they were co-equal to deacons. Are the deacons what we call in this church servant leaders? Or were the deacons what we call ruling elders? An argument from 1 Timothy 5.17 would argue for the latter. Um, Pliny mentions church deaconesses or ministries in his 112.80 epistle to Trojan. Trajan. On it goes. You can see uh, other big names that are Orthodox people listed here who affirmed all of this. The Congregation of Christendom, for instance. Uh, as further ruled by Philip Schaff, uh, you have a quote there that talks about it. So we see deaconesses, and the question is, what are the... There's no doubt that there were deaconesses. 
this isn't authoritative, but given some of the scripture I've just shown you, and given the history of the church, of this of redemptive history with women doing a lot of things, leadership rise, it raises the question. More recent history from 17th century, I give you some examples. I quote Calvin, who did have deaconesses, by the way, um, but he distinguished them from from ruling elders. So he would distinguish ruling elders from deaconesses. Um, it's hard to know exactly if deaconesses, and they certainly pertain to some ministries of mercy, etc. Were they would, would they look more like an assistant elder, i.e., assisting the elders in the governance of the church, or they look more like what we today in the Book of Church Order sense call deacons, as in those who manage the the, the communion of saints, but non-jurisdictional authority. Uh, even there, it's, it's a little uh, ambiguous with Calvin. Did you have a question? Yeah, I mean, it seems that throughout church history that there has been a <clears throat> presence of women <coughs> elders, deacons, deacons. Um, deacons here, whatever they are, yeah. Yeah. What Was there a specific time period where that was frowned upon and then pulled out? And, and what yeah. was the driving force to that period of time? Great question. Um, well... I mean, it's a very hard question to answer simply, but most of what we see today in the way in which, the way, I mean, what you're seeing throughout church history, I'm going to argue, would suggest, is their division. I mean, people are struggling with scripture, okay? And that's a good thing. And you certainly see divergent opinions throughout church history on the issue of women, no doubt, okay? What I would argue, though, is that the way those uh, divides are are defined becomes radically differentiated post enlightenment 19th century fundamentalism and uh, the fundamentalist uh, blank debate um, modernist debate and um, and so you have whole new paradigms of how the scriptures read than were read before that um, to give you I mean what are the fundamentals the five fundamentals anybody know would you be surprised they don't they don't even Mention the Trinity? Would you be surprised if everyone mentioned certain things? In other words, what happened in the fundamentalist controversy of the 19th century and early 20th century is the the debate changed radically in reaction to post-Enlightenment, uh, you know, both the materialism of post-Enlightenment or, or positivism, if you will, and um, this reaction to the evolutionary stuff and I mean, you had Christians who never read the Bible. I can't think of hardly anyone that read the Bible the way the fundamentalists said we should read it literalistically. I mean, B.B. Warfield, I mean, you know, Calvin, Luther, all the way back to Augustine. What, what became a literal translation of the Bible is what gave us that wacky interpretation of revelations that Rowry gives us where you're literally trying to come up with these crazy harmonies between totally different concepts because we're trying to make these literal words match up instead of reading it apocalyptically or reading it whatever. And so so to answer your question, while there's always been, I think, a, a good and valid uh, debate about, okay, what... I didn't get to really go into these passages enough, but clearly I've shown you enough scripture to see that you could, there, there are quite a few ways you can understand that women are leaders and they, they're prescribed in Scripture to be leaders, to me is absolutely, it, to, to argue against that is undefensible scripturally. You just can't do it. 
and, and, and unless you just do all kinds of wacky somersaults around the scripture. The nature of their leadership is, is a valid debate. It's a valid debate. And what, we're, what I hope to show you, what I hope that you're getting is, whatever we do in that wacky debate, in that, in that debate, I don't want to undermine what is clear in Scripture. What is clear is co-equality between men and women in the gospel. What is clear is that women emerged as key leaders in the church and affirmed by God in every redemptive era, which is amazing given the, the culture of those eras. And number three is there is some spiritual distinction related to authority between men and women in the household and in the church. Or half these passages wouldn't even exist. They wouldn't need to exist. I mean, it begs the question why they're even in the Bible. That he would even make some distinction. Whatever that distinction is. But that's what, so that's sort of indisputable. Those are the three indisputables, I would say. The way then that gets worked out in redemptive history, I, was giving, I gave you a brief history already. You saw the way it was done in 100 A.D. You see how it's going to be done later in Calvin. He's going to say, oh, no, I'm not sure I want them in the... You don't hear any mention, I don't think, in Calvin, I'm aware of where deaconesses are, are called members of a presbytery. So he obviously... Are you aware of that? You, either one of you guys, I don't, I can't, I can't say I haven't looked everything he's written anywhere, but I'm not aware of where it would have been done that way. And from everything I understand about Calvin, he understood deaconesses as distinct from the male deacons, even in their authority. But he recognized laying on of hands, which is a big deal, which means all the church has to recognize them and give them a, give them respect as those ordained by God. And that's Calvin, for God's sake. I mean, we're talking hyper here. You know, if you want to talk about church history. And and yet, we get into the post-fundamentalist controversy, and you have denominations that don't even let you whisper that. So, and I think the fundamentalist controversy is the big thing you're looking for. Yeah? I just, I think the more that you lose the concept of ecclesiology in office, mm. the more you are prone to try to put a fence out almost arbitrarily and start expanding it in gender roles and distinction. But the idea of office and really right. believing that that's scriptural, because you take some examples and you say, well, there's women prophets. Uh, don't prophets have authority? Well, I mean, look, there's there's a prophet, Agabus, who tells Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You'll get, you'll get um, persecuted. The prophet's right, but Paul goes to Jerusalem. He, if he was really the authority, if the prophet was authority, he wouldn't, he wouldn't submit it. Yeah. You look at, uh, Jesus has all these women around him supporting his ministry. And yet, all twelve disciples are men. I mean, there's there's a sense in which if you read office and authority yeah, the way right. I think scripture guides you to read it, but we brush over it as, oh no, he just chose twelve because twelve was a nice number, and these aren't real, you know, these offices of apostle, that just means key leader. And, you know, if you if you brush over ecclesiology, don't think that that's in the New Testament, then I think you're just really sticking your finger in the wind trying to discern this issue. Um, but the more you do it, the more you realize Scripture sort of guiding you in this. So. Good. No, I agree. Well, let's, let's bring this to a close here real quickly. Um, so what, what does this mean, I guess, specifically here? Our church, let's get to CPC now. On the one hand, 
I want to make it clear to you that I think it would be uncharitable and not even biblical to make to assume that a person who holds to women ordination, whether it's pastoral ordination or elder ordination or deacon organization, is therefore a unorthodox pastor, elder, leader. Um, it just just doesn't fit. There's a lot of good scripture here. Having said that, I will make the case that for those who have held those positions, which there are many, you know, again, I'll just mention John Stott and David Wells. I mentioned those two, by the way. Y'all, y'all maybe not know them. I can't think of too many people who fought against liberalism more ferociously than those two men in my generation. I mean, they are just, I mean, they have been more persecuted, John Stott especially, than anyone I know for his stand against liberalism. Okay, so when I reach those guys, and these guys all believe in women ordination of teaching elders, ruling elders, and deacons. Now, all of them, though, would make a distinction to fit what we've said here. They believe that there is a sacred role play wherein Christ and the church is being modeled or imitated in the polity of the family and in the polity of the church, that that role play needs to be respected. So, for instance, if you ask John Stott, well, how is that respected? He would argue that this senior pastor plays a role. That's part of his role. Don't think of it as a role play. That he would play the role of imitating this relationship with the church. But then there could be subordinate pastors, assistant pastors, associate whatever, who are women. Others have made the case that, okay, no, there are many ordinations of, of pastors. It gets back to the issue of office. Do you believe, is it conceivable to be a teaching elder but not be given the ministry of word and sacrament? In our polity, it isn't. In our polity, to be ordained is to be given the right of word and sacrament, which is, by the way, why we need to be doubly careful. But in some traditions, that's not true. For some traditions, they distinguish between the ordination of word and sacrament from other ordinations. You see that particularly even in the Catholic tradition and some other traditions as well, maybe the Anglican. No. No? No. And so you have this distinction going on here. And um, and so that's an issue, see. So I do want to say that it's, it's very hard-pressed for me to make a case that there is, at some level of polity, there's no distinction between women and men. There just is. But I can't then make the wrong mistake of saying, therefore, those who hold to the ordination of women are unorthodox and have some kind of wacky hermeneutic. These guys are working with a good hermeneutic, and they have every reason from Scripture to believe what they believe, in my opinion. And personally, I'll say it, and I don't recommend it, that, uh, that you know, I would not want that to be a line of subscription in, in a denomination. I would prefer that we form denominations that would not make that issue uh, a litmus test as to whether you can be ordained or not, as to what your position is. Um, but having said that, you know, you have to choose the denomination you have to ask, okay, you, you make compromises whatever denomination you choose. Especially the more you study scripture, the more you have scruples, right? And so obviously I've been doing this for a while. I've studied it very hard, and I've got some scruples. And I've got some real big scruples. 
But then you ask the question, where do I have the least number of scruples? <laughs> and what denomination has the five marks that's most compatible to what I describe as the meta issues, which are the five marks? And at least so far, we are convinced that the PCA is, is that, even though, in my humble opinion, it needs to get out of the fundamentalist controversies of yesteryear. And in my humble opinion, if we have the office of deacon as a third office, we should be ordaining them. In my humble opinion, I think I, we would, in my humble opinion, which I don't think there's an elder here that agrees with me probably, I don't know, but I would probably want to see women ordained as elders and maybe even associate pastors. But that being said, I'm comfortable in a nomination that, I couldn't say that though in the PCA, that second, last one. Why? Because in this nomination, we define that as ministry of word and sacrament. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that's appropriate. That, that would be where the, the, the role play works out is the ministry of word and sacrament. So that's why this denomination, given our definition of, of pastors uh, and the privileges they have, I couldn't go for women ordination of, of pastors. Now that's just where I'm at. That's not where our session's at necessarily. I don't even know if that's where you're at um, or you're at. But uh, I'm speaking totally there. But I'm doing it to try to set you... We all have very good relations here and the session has a good relationship with me and I with them because this isn't the Lisbon's test. That's my point. Yeah. So what is the reason then that PCA does enforce this rule? Well, you know, I, oh boy. <laughs> um, I mean, one, I think there's a real, there's real good biblical reasons for it. Okay. I've tried to, I mean, really, I could make, I can sit up here and probably convince you of it right now. You know, I've done it before in my past. There are good real biblical reasons for it. My point in trying to show you is that there are other biblical reasons that would be want to loosen it up some. I mean, to me, the, the illustration of Phoebe and the illustration of deacon language assigned to women in 1 Timothy 3, I mean, to the very least, but see, it gets very com- much more complex, Chris, because like we talked about last week, how many offices are there? Do we believe in a two-office church, a three-office church, or a 2.5-office church? Remember that discussion? And and for me, see, I believe, I hold to the historic reform tradition of a two-office church. Pastors and ruling elders. Both called, well, both called elders, but bishop elders and deacon elders, if you will. That's my personal position. I think that's about half of our session's position here. Um, and I think probably sympathetic to the teaching elders. I'm not sure. I haven't talked to y'all recently. But that being said, that's not our denomination's position. So now... See, I would nece- I'm not necessarily for ordination of women deacons if you mean by deacons ruling elders. Although, like I just said, I'd prefer to be in a nomination that allows for it. Um, but if you're going to have deacons that are defined the way that our, our Constitution defines it, as a servant leader, you know, then unequivocally I'm for women, uh, deacon ordination. But I think there are reasons in Scripture because of what I said, and they get things, categories get confused as you're working through Scripture, in my humble opinion. But the second reason I'd say, Chris, is culture wars. If there's one concern I have for any denomination, um, it's a denomination that is formed in reaction to culture wars. And too often that's what's happening right now. Is We're forming denominations not based on our biblical view of polity and biblical view of the gospel, etc., we're saying we, you know, even the word confessionalism in the mainline Presbyterian Church right now. There's what's called the Confessing Church movement, and I, the way we use confessionalism, that would mean someone who's treating ser- the scriptures very, very, very seriously, 
someone who wants to read scripture with the church for 2,000 years. In other words, a confessing, what we call confessionalism, right? And it's having the historic creeds, reading scripture with that creed, but ultimately sola scriptura all the way. And I'm, and I'm not saying that's not what the confessing, and I know some of these people, and I went to school, as you know, I got my doctoral work up in Pittsburgh uh, with them in, in Aberdeen, and so there was a lot of interaction with them at that very high level, and we had long, late-night conversations about this movement. And what I pick up from that movement is it's more we're not the gay, lesbian, affirming church. Now, I'm, I agree with their position on that, by the way. Well, I affirm gay, lesbians, so I don't like that language, but, you know, I don't believe. But the point is, what I... I, 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 that's dangerous, you know. I know that that's we we you and I've talked some about this, and Foley and I've talked about it. That's that's a danger for any denomination that's pulling out of a liberal situation. And all of our traditions have examples of that, where all of a sudden our core identity becomes what we're not and what we don't agree with. If that's gay, lesbian positions or whatever, that's very dangerous. I think you're losing the heart and soul of the church when you do that. Yeah, Kevin. But I just also probably just to play the other side for a second. While I do agree that there's the impulse in some of the PCA to make the decision based on the fundamentalist impulses, right. I think that in other denominations they make the ordination of women on modernist right. impulses right. to say we're only doing it not because of scripture but because modern in why were you involved in totally. understanding this? Absolutely. And I think a lot of people that wrestle with it do see that we're getting at an exegetical issue. Um, I don't want to make this decision based on either one of those things. Right. And so I right. like the fact that you know you start out saying we need to respect the exegetical work that both sides are doing and whatever side you come down on, you're basing it on yeah. scripture, not to anathematize yeah. the others because of that. Exactly. And I've got more problems with the fundamentalists who maybe take the same sides as I do, and certainly more problems with the modernists who so. Well, yeah, and just to be clear, I totally agree with what Kevin just said. You're not having to play devil advocate. That, I agree. The question was just, why does the PCA? Right, no, I'm, and they're not liberal. But yes, I agree that. So, what I was saying to piggyback on his point, though, is what I said at the very beginning of this, this seminar that there are two sides, as Kevin's talking about. There's the modernists and there's the fundamentalists, and they're both in the same bed. They're doing cultural exegesis. They're both in the same bed. Just go read George Marsden's masterful uh, description of, of liberal, the fundamentalist liberal uh, debate. We've read that as pastors. We have to protect ourselves from both because I yes. think sometimes we get so frustrated with fundamentalists and how they treat it. Yes. That we tend to wind up in a modernist. I'm getting, I'm getting, I have a couple of people who give me emails. Uh, one that used to be in this church comes back periodically. I get an email probably every week, you know, chiding me for not being. Uh, you know, quoting the Luthers and everybody they can he can quote to say, you know, if you don't preach to the issue of the day, you're not preaching faithfully at all. That kind of language. But but and, and you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, Pastor, why don't you make this more prominent in your ministry? I.e., um, read the newspaper. And and no, really, that's what he he really even says it. I mean, read the newspaper. Read, look what's happening in America. It's all about America. It's all about the, the, how America's going to hell in a handbasket. Aren't you concerned for America? Can't you help your people? You need to be out there slamming all this stuff. And, you know, I've, I've stopped doing it. I'm about to get rid of those emails. But the point is is that, that I understand his... I, I love America. I love my homeland. My two sons are fighting for it. I understand that. But as a, as a man of the gospel... 
I'm here to make disciples, and I'm not going to convert one gay person that way. I don't think any gay person has ever been converted to Jesus Christ with that methodology. All that's doing is playing the culture wars. And all it's doing is solidifying the base on the left and the right. That's all it's doing. Someone needs to get at That's fine. Play, your, play that game if you're called to do it. That's fine. I'm not saying it's wrong. Do your whatever. But as a minister of the gospel, I'm here to convert and show the love of Jesus Christ for all sinners with no respect of what sin it is. And, um, and so that's why, that's whoever answered the question, that's, that's what I think is going on is very subtly... The church inherits the mantle of cultural transformation and, and winning the culture war and the church becoming a ministry of culture wars. And I think that's the answer to your question. And because of that, you get into the slippery slope arguments. I think there are a lot of people who would, who would argue, Chris, and I've heard it too many times, that the reason why we don't want deacon women if, in our three deacon system it's typically, I mean, there, there's got to be a biblical argument here. But typically, it's just, that's just the first step. I mean, you hear that language all the time. That's the first step. That's, we're heading down the, this is the slope. Here we go, slippery slope. And I think you remember, we do talk about that. What? I said the first step was letting them in the church. Yeah, preaching. But yeah, there's, it's a slippery slope or it's a guilty by association. Those two arguments, Chris, I think are way too common when I hear the rhetoric on the floor of assemblies. And, you know, there we go. I think he had his hand up first. Uh, that, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, we, especially as the PCA, look at the PCUSA and how that they've said... Where did it all start? started with women, and now look what they're doing. They're getting <laughs> yeah, what I was going to say is, you know, here's their position on the need of Christ in this. If we do this, we're, you know, that, that guilty mindset. By the way, on the gay-lesbian issue, um, transgender, all that... Uh, I mean, to me, that's a very serious matter. And, um, and I really, you know, um, you all notice, I, maybe some of you notice, I did post something on Facebook, which is very characteristic about it. And I am concerned about the loss of religious freedom, that issue. If this issue becomes defined as a civil rights issue, we are looking at some real trouble for the church. Um, and that's what it is being defined as right now, as a civil rights issue, when I don't think it is. And we're having to go back and... You know what's what's what is the etymology of marriage? Where where did this concept of marriage come from? You know we forget that it was a it was a religious and church concept that we acknowledge the church always acknowledged that there was a that marriage was both a redemptive there was a redemptive purposefulness in, in marriage and there was also a common grace purposefulness in marriage. But all you know societies and and generally in Christendom societies and churches agreed. Who should be married? And up until very recently, you could say. And so with that agreement, what you had was the state allowing the church, say in Scotland, as a parish uh, a politic, to govern the institution of marriage. You still go there. You go to Scotland today. I was there, as you know, in uh, St. Mocker's Church. We had this conversation. I had it with the pastor. He's my professor there. How do you deal with you know, Muslims? Non-believers, anybody can be married, but you have to be approved by the Church of Saint Margaret, and Saint Margaret will approve that marriage based upon the de- definition of does it constitute being a marriage or not. And even the Church can argue. I would argue that the marriage is not limited to just Christians. 
Therefore, rightly, I believe, if the church... Now, I don't agree with the church regulating marriage for society, personally. I do agree with the separation of church and state on that level. But if that's what the role of the church is, the parish politic of Aberdeen, in this case, then rightly, the church said, marriage is a common grace institution and it's going to be given to uh, Muslims, it's going to be given to atheists, it's going to be given... But they have a definition, at least then, I don't know what it is now... But it does, it is definable though. You do define marriage at some point before you say, well, no, that's not a marriage. I can't give, I mean, what are you licensing if you don't have a definition of it, right? And they had a definition, which it is, that it belonged to men and women. Now, that was a definition that comes out of, of course, the historic Judeo-Christian thing. Once that definition is now questioned in society, I want to, I'm glad here we don't regulate marriage. And I'm, I would say, if I were in Scotland, I'd say, I'm not regulating marriage anymore for you. You've got to go down to justice of peace. You know? I'm not going to be doing the regulation of marriage anymore if you're, you, you, you no longer agree with my church definition of marriage. Well, see, that's the history of this issue. I know I'm off, but I just feel like some people need to know this. So I would advocate, on the one hand, that, that I'm glad that we distinguish between the issue of marriage, church redemptive marriage and civil marriage, if you will. I don't like the word marriage for civil marriage. I like the word civil unions. And my concern in this issue is the way that if we've lost that whole history. So now it's going to be the church is controlling all marriage. You see what just happened? Right over here. And instead of this joint thing that I do right now, when I marry you, what do I say? By the authority invested in me by the church of Jesus Christ and the state of Connecticut, I pronounce you man and wife. That's what I say. Now, they're going to take out the Church of Jesus Christ for all marriages if we're not careful. There is no Church of Jesus Christ institution anymore. It's all state. It's all a civil rights issue. And I'm telling you, I I do. I have great fear of what's happening right now. I am already prepared, in this city especially, to be walking my little tail to jail. Because it's going to come. And so that I'm very concerned about this issue. So what I'm trying to say is it's not wrong for a church, when the scripture speaks, to speak into culture issues. Even if I'm still not driven by that particular issue as being the defining issue of my ministry. I want the gospel to be the defining issue of our ministry here. You see what I'm saying? And yeah, I'm advocating for a distinction between civil unions and, hey, state, you can, yeah, I'll put on my other hat as a citizen and I'll argue about what a, a definition of a civil union can be. And that's a cultural debate. It's valid, and we need to argue it too. Christians go argue it. But I'm more concerned that we distinguish marriage and that being controlled by the church only and civil unions, which is controlled by the city. But I get that distinction from from a historical context that almost everyone has lost. Because that's where it all started. It was an institution of the church in Scotland and England, of which then, and of course the the theocracy, etc. Well, I'm off base. Back to the women. Any questions about women in ministry um, at this issue? Last quick question, I think, because yeah. the vocal was the one thing I could read. Yeah. Does our denomination have both, ordaining both deacons and elders? I just no. can't even remember. It's just elders. Oh, no. I'm so, oh, yeah, that's interesting. No, we ordain pastors, elders, and deacons. And, okay. and we, have, we do have a category called assistant deacons, which I think is taken from Calvin. And they can be women. Right now. Yeah. But by ordained, I mean learning out of hands. That's right. 
you can't or in, in, in you can't the deaconesses. Yeah, not, deaconesses. It's the not, assistant deacon is not laid on. Deacon. That's right. They're going to teach about the role, but assistant deacons are not ordained. Right. Although okay. they do ordain deacons. Deacon. Right. Okay. Of course, it doesn't escape many women and men as well that. You know, they walk like a duck. They talk like quack like a dog. Why, why are we not putting hands on them? You know, uh, why, why, what, what's the difference here? And I guess technically the difference is that some vote and some don't in the in the midst of it. Here, as you know, we've we've looked at this issue, women issue, but we've also looked at the two, three, two half office view, and we've come to the conclusion that one, I don't think there is any biblical evidence that to, for a church to be organized, that there must have three offices. I mean, you disqualify about half the churches in the world. Um, but uh, so what we've argued is that that while it is required to have a pastor and a board of elders in order for a church to be a church, an organized church, it's not required that we have a deacon board, an ordained deacon board. And because I think there's pretty much unanimity on our session that deacon, if there are a third office of deacon, they should be ordained. Um, at, that there would be an ordination nation that includes women. We have that effect in the servant leader board. You know, in terms of women with the authority of Phoebe and men with the authority of Phoebe doing work in this church. They have organizational authority, but not jurisdictional, not spiritual jurisdictional. There's no binding and loosing going on in the deacon board here or the servant leader board. And then, as you know, in our church, we have uh, recognized the WLB. Um, we discussed calling them women elders, or elder women I think is what it was, but we just felt like to avoid controversy within our denomination and within this church we would call it women leader board. I don't like I hate the word board because that sounds like a fiduciary you know, kind of an executive board or something and so I don't like the word board personally but but it was something that we thought would fit with a certain leader board. So that's where we are and, um, and in terms of otherwise in the church what we are going to say, of course, is that women can do everything and anything a man can do until it involves spiritual authority. That's our position. So if a man can read in the public service, so can a woman. If a man can do whatever an elder, whatever he can do that's not acting jointly as an elder, then a woman can do here. That a woman can teach. Because we allow men to teach, and we believe lay people can teach. Now they're going to teach not exhortively, and like in a sermon. And that's why we distinguish sermons. Sermons are a higher level than teaching in Sunday school or even teaching in any other context. But we do believe in women teachers here. We see that scripture as what I showed you is let not them teach with authority, i.e. preach. Um, but we don't see it as no, no teaching. Now, like men and women, we're not going to. You're not going to teach because you're a woman. You're not going to teach because you're a man. You're going to now have other credentials. Like I know this subject very well, and you have man. You're a man of, or woman of character, and all the other things. So we we do, as you know, uh, um, examine our, our all people who are Sunday school teachers for those three things: the, the, your doctrine, your character, and your sense of call. All right. So, any other questions? Do y'all feel good about this? Is this good? So. Take home and let's take a break. Is now we're about to look at the shepherd training, uh, the practice of acting as a shepherd. I hope you are convinced that women need to be in the room because we have shepherd leader women that we believe is a biblical thing to have. Our gracious Lord, we do thank you for uh, a chance to consider the calling that 
uh, you have for the eldership, for the women leadership board, for those who are uh, shepherding. It's a high calling, and I, uh, I pray that as we think about being equipped for that and the seriousness of it, that you um, you help us to know that in, in human terms, none of us is worthy of that, and yet you do equip and, and, um, and supply for your sheep. We pray that you'll bless us now as we... Um, Think about being a shepherd leader and uh, guide our discussion. In Jesus' name, amen. I do hope that you liked um, Whit- Whitmer's book. Um, he's, uh, he, he really does do a great job of emphasizing what it means to shepherd, um, moving the definition away from board, uh, this group of authoritative figures who sit in some lofty, separated out room making all the decisions for the church um, and not really engaged. Um, But on the other hand, I also uh, hope that you were were challenged and encouraged by it um, and maybe maybe a sense intimidated by it. has, was anybody intimidated by reading reading this call? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It is. Um, I was I was thinking about leadership uh, several months ago, and I read this thing. I can't remember exactly where I read it, uh, and I'm going to mess up some of the details. But the gist of it was um, this person struggling with the call to be a leader and wondering if they themselves were a leader. And they thought that either to be a leader you had to be have this extreme self-confidence almost bordering on arrogance, or you had to be extremely outgoing, and that those were the only two things. And this person was wrestling with that, and at the end of the day he said, oh, but you know, the way that the self-confidence was dis- de- defined, it was more, it wasn't arrogance so much, but it was this idea that you see a problem and you feel that God has put you in there to be the one to address the problem. And so that, that was, um, I thought, really, really helpful for those of you who may feel like, well, you're not outgoing per, per se, uh, and maybe you don't feel confident in your own ability. Uh, but to say being a leader is actually to see a problem, see an issue, and know that God's equipped you to enter into it and be be part of the solution. Um, and I, I hear that really echoing through Whitmer and how he describes this, that you take responsibility because so often um, when you think about leaders, sometimes you can, you can think of them as detached and in some room making these decisions or some huge charismatic personality, but really it's this, it's involved, it's engaging. It's uh, it's it's seeing you as the responsibility, and I think how Whitmer frames most of this book, but especially the the six the chapter six here, he starts out with this image that comes from Ezekiel thirty four. Um, I'll read the, the the quote of it here. He says, I will, I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There uh, shall they lie down in good grazing land, and a rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. 
So that's the Lord being the shepherd. Does anybody else know the context of that chapter? What what is going on in Ezekiel thirty four? I believe we got some bad shepherds. Yes, he's addressing some bad right. priests. Right, and why are they bad? They're serving their own interests. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 And a lot of the way that's described is neglect. Not feeding, being, growing fat themselves, but not engaging. And so the Lord comes in and rebukes. And so the response, because you see this passage, it's the response shouldn't be, oh, well, it's, it's God's responsibility anyway, so I'm not going to get involved. No, it's... It is God's sheep, so therefore we need to care as under-shepherds. And that's how he, he, he frames this. That when you look at the congregation, you don't look at, oh, well, they have their personal relationship with God, and me as a, as a leader, I've got to maintain my spirituality, and my, you know, I need to be a good example maybe, but I can't really tell them what to do. No, you have to look at the rest of the congregation in some way and say, that's Christ's sheep. He's put me as an under-shepherd of Christ, and i got to make sure that um, this is a healthy flock. And part of being the plurality of leaders is that together we need to, we need to care for them because they're going to, on their own, head to danger. And so I, I just wanted to have that image of, of, uh, of shepherds um, put that in the front because that, that runs through Whitmer's book and it's really how he... Um, he thinks about these three chapters of feeding the sheep, um, leading the sheep, and protecting the sheep. Um, so uh, I hope that um, you know that that can frame it well. Let me let me just go through this um, a sort of a survey of it. I want to ask some questions. I want to engage with you all as we go through this, and then um, I have some questions for you to discuss at the table before Craig uh, comes up. Um, but any sort of questions or issues with Whitmer to start? Let me let me jump in here. Um, the six, chapter six is about feeding, um, feeding the sheep. Where is when we think about it? Where does feeding where is feeding typically done? When you think about. What's that? Of sheep and a pack. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Let's make the metaphor of go to the church. Yeah, no, you're... Yeah, sorry. It, it, it's very easy. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 my bad. My, it's completely my fault for not, not uh, making sure that metaphor was connected to a reality here. Um, what, when we think of the church context, where is feeding typically done? And what is feeding? Preaching of the word. Teaching. Preaching. Teaching. Okay. Studying of the scriptures. Okay. Fellowship. Prayer. Okay. Catechism. Okay. Good. Yeah, I, I, and I think that um, Whitmer does a good job of making sure that that's not simply left to pastors. Um, I think the one thing that we could miss in this is to say that the feeding is only done from the pulpit or only done from Christian literature or only done through um, 
some ordained figure sitting at the at the at the head of the congregation. What is the food? Yeah, well, the word the word of God is the food. Why is it important that that is that is how someone is fed? What what's significant about the the word being the food rather than something else being the food? Because it's unchanging. Yeah, okay, so you can get into the nature of what that is. Like it says, the promise of God is linked to His word and not to our wisdom. Yes, right. It's complete nutrition. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. It will provide and satisfy completely. Right. right. How do you feel that it's? Uh, when you're playing on that, it's not our wisdom. Um, how does that make you feel as someone who would be charged to to feed that it's the word of God? And not your wisdom. Yeah, right. I mean, it is. It, it's actually quite liberating, and I think empowering to get up there and say, "Oh, you know, look. <laughs> I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but there it is in the word. <laughs> you know, in my opinion, I might say things differently. But you know, we have that conversation about women <laughs> in office and." You know, I was like, well, you know, my opinion, I would really like that to, I mean, it, that's caused the PCA uh, a lot of bad stigma, especially in a town like this. I'd love to be out there and say, you know what, it all, you know, I, of course, believe that there's biblical wisdom in the way scripture does it. But in a way, you can just cower behind the text and say, sorry, this is what it says. And I, my job isn't to tell you how to live your life based on me. It's based upon God's word, and that will ultimately feed them. Um, a Whitmer says, a fundamental responsibility of any and every shepherd is to assure that the sheep are well-nourished. Um, I think that was, I put that quote in there because I think, um, again, it is, however you think about being a shepherd leader, um, it is your responsibility to feed the sheep. It's not simply to say, okay, the pastor will do that part of it. Um, and I think that's it's very, very uh, uh, challenging. I think it challenges our stereotypes. Um, and I think it, it also, uh, the second thing that I think challenges our stereotypes is his constant distinction between macro and micro. Um, I think we tend to focus on the macro almost exclusively. And as we'll see, Whitmer will say that um, biblical shepherding, um, effective shepherding, flows out of the micro and into the macro, not the other way around. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more of that, but um, macro feeding and micro feeding for this, this chapter, he begins with um, probably the more typical macro feeding, ministry of God's word. What, so what is it, before, let's define macro. What does it mean by macro? When, when Whitmer talks about macro feeding. Kind of corporate setting. Or okay, yeah. Corporate setting. Larger, rather than one-on-one -on -one individual uh, to, the, to the whole congregation publicly. 
uh, overseeing the public ministry of God's word, preaching, education, classes, small groups. So in practicality, what do you think this looks like in a church? How does, how does an elder WB person enter into that engagement in preaching, education classes, small groups? Established times for worship, method okay. of pattern of worship, okay. um, correct, perhaps approved curriculum for small groups and or Sunday schools. Yeah, yeah. To be engaged in all those conversations, not to farm it out. Right. Why is it important that it's the elders that, that do that? Or the, you know, the, the, how do I, what do I call them? Shepherds that do that. Yeah, other than that. Why is it important? They're in touch with the people. Yeah. They know. Again, we're seeing it coming out of the micro. Right. In touch with the people. You're invested. You know. Otherwise, it might be food, but not nourishment. Yeah. It could be junk food if you're not overseeing it and making sure that it's true. Yeah. Good curriculum. You know, those kind of things. Yeah. And also trained to do those kind of things carefully and rely on God's wisdom to make the decisions. Yeah. What, what other uh, ways do elders, shepherds, entering into this? Well, you're also an example. You're an example, yeah. If you yep. are you know, asking the sheep to follow this, you know, attend this, mm-hmm. do this, but you never show up. Yep. That's you're there, you're, you're present. Yeah. Yeah. You're also participating. I mean, you're, you're doing these things. Hopefully you are leading and teaching. Um, Hopefully you are leading small groups. Um, That's just easy coming out of the micro and maybe start to think, you know, coming out of the micro, you know the temperature of the church. What right. Are the, what are the issues? What are the things that we're facing as a church? And that could lead you in a certain way. So as far as the next quarter or whatever, what, what ought to be? Right. What ought to be fed? That's right. That's right. I mean, it's really, I think... I think sometimes it's easy just to defer to staff to do that stuff, but and and we do have a certain perspective, but it is a certain perspective that is a bit skewed. And to be able to get in that room and hear the Holy Spirit working through other people that are in these roles, you do get a better sense of what the what the needs are. Um, systematic expository preaching. Um, Whitmer gives some really excellent reasons why going through verse by section by section in scripture in order is important. He says it identifies the heart of the Christian message, it respects the intent of the author, it respects textual units, it avoids hobby horse hobby horses, it requires difficult texts to be preached, it enables the congregation to be students of the Bible, it gives boldness because not uh, because no there should be no preachers. Uh, it's, it's, oh, I'm sorry. It's not the pre- preacher's fallible views. Um, it gives confidence. Not it's not be, it's not the preacher's opinions. It helps for sermon planning and it provides for the long term care of the congregation. Um, I, I think uh, I hope that you have benefited from systematic expositional preaching in this church, and you see why. It's important to do that. Um, 
it's very tempting to skip over passages that are really, really awkward or controversial or sometimes even feel like it's maybe not exciting, you know, all this stuff. But, uh, you know, we have the charge and, and take it very seriously to, uh, to help you understand the scripture and just do all of it, the whole counsel of God. Yeah. Thank you. And doing that way too, there's a weight, weight, weightiness of it as opposed to a hobby force. Right. That you just feel like, you know, this is the word of God, there's any weight with yeah. this. It sets the agenda. I don't set the agenda. You know, it it tells me what the people need to hear. I don't I don't make that decision. And you know, there's there's nuances in all that, but um, but I think that's huge because we're saying to you that our authority is Determined only by the Word of God, not by something something extra biblical. Um, and I think that this is where the this is where the um, the shepherd leaders need to come in and play another role. They play a strong a, a role in helping maintain strong expositional sermons. You want to make sure your preachers are doing that. You want to encourage your preachers to do that. You want to if there's a transition, you want to hire somebody that that. Um, Look for a shepherd who's going to do that. You're going to want to, um, you know, help other people who come in from other traditions and say, "Well, you know, you're not really practical in. You're not. You're not. Why are, where's your sermon on this politician, or where's your sermon on this agenda?" Um, you're going to want to say to that person who's coming in, "Well, it's not in the text. <laughs> if you get that out of that text, uh, you're doing some magic or something." But you, you know, you you're you're trying to read this. Scripture because you're submitting to it. Um, and pastors, he said, pastors should be eager for the input of elders who are in touch with the needs of the people. I think that's a, a general theme here. So that, he starts out with a, the macro, which I think we're more common to, to associate with, and then the micro fe- feeding. Personal ministry in small groups, personal discipleship. First Timothy 3, when it talks about elders, it says they must be apt to teach. Um, and, you know, of course, there's a range in that. That doesn't mean that they have to be good public speakers. It doesn't mean that they are able to exhort in a, in a broad way. Um, but all should be able to communicate the faith and to, to teach individuals, um, if not being able to teach small groups. Um, and I think we, you know, in our days of rhetoric, I think there's enough in Paul that will say, some of the rhetorical flair that teaching can bring with it um, is not necessarily biblical. So we need to we need to guard ourselves against that being an expectation of what an elder is. But that teaching is a responsibility. Um, approaches to microfeeding, use of the catechism, interact and help understand the fundamentals of the faith. Um, I think. Uh, being able to see a congregation, and, and in this case, specific individuals in a congregation, not as um, not as sort of spokes on a, in a wheel hub that all individually have their own responsibility to grow and and maybe just connect with either the pastor or connect themselves with God, but see all of them as on a on a spiritual path, and that that is not a that's not a static um, status. 
The, sp- the spiritual life of every individual in this congregation is in motion. It's either moving away from Christ or moving toward Christ. And the, the shepherd leader needs to engage all those people. It can't just assume that in, in the, the feeding responsibility that um, that you got these stable people over there, and I'm just I just need to worry about myself or my own my own family. There's a there's a, a feeding responsibility that goes, um, and this is where he gets into the demographics of it: young and weak, those who are struggling with particular sin. You can't just say, well, yeah, I really don't know what to say to somebody who's struggling with pornography. I I'm just afraid to even talk about that stuff. Um, if you don't, the sheep are going to get gobbled up. Whatever particular issue it is, um, it could be that something that, that you struggle with, and maybe materialism, maybe it's you know all the all the, the particular issues there. Um, if you're afraid to engage it, your sheep are going to get gobbled up. And it doesn't mean that you have to be the master of those things, but understand the gospel, um, in, you know, the need to engage those those issues. That it is something you need to repent and cling to Christ and find hope in. Um, declining Christians and the strong. I'm glad he put the strong in there. I mean, it's so easy to just assume that some people are no maintenance and that that means that they're, they don't need to be talked to. No. We should always think about encouraging and, and um, uh, developing uh, the, the strong as much as, as, much as the weak. Um, so I hope, you know, it's intimidating to see that, that picture, uh, but I hope it's also giving you a full uh, sense of what this call is. Um, what do you think your biggest limitation in feeding the sheep is? Myself. Okay. What, what do you mean by that? Well, probably knowing that I can't be all of these things to all of these people all the time sort of idea that, you know, how, maybe that how can I guide and direct and teach when I don't have it all okay. together, yeah. I think. What, what kind of a ratio of elders to families are we talking about? The thing that I have a very difficult time reconciling in my mind is, is the, the time that it takes to get to know a person and a family to be able to earn their trust and uh, and that sort of thing. How does that shape out? If somebody calls on me once a year, I'm not going to be too open to sharing my heart with that person, no matter how good they are. Yep, and I and I think that uh, if that becomes a hard and fast line for you, it's easy to use that as an excuse not to engage. I understand. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, there's always a matter of pastoral wisdom, but I'm more concerned that we'll say, well, you know, I don't really know that person, so I'm not going to get into their business, but even though I see them doing some things that are really drifting for Christ. What do you think is the good, is a, a right ratio? Yeah, so I, I don't know, I can't remember who said that. Um, so I remember this interesting question. It might have been Samuel Miller, but... I think it was in Miller, yeah. Uh, you don't know where I'm going. I don't know. 
My, uh, no, no, no. Uh, my, or at least, let me say my point first, and then we'll see who said it. But I think, I think it was Miller who said uh, that the number of elders are the number of, of people that God has called there. So the, that ratio is the number of people God. Now, I think that there's, there's probably a little biblical wisdom on saying it's good if you have a 500-person congregation not to have two elders. Um, but there's no there's no biblical uh, line to say that, that one is the other. I think you definitely want to have, rather than having 15 elders and some are just filler, you want to have the right people in those positions. Godly people who are going to fulfill this. You don't want to have non- Elders, non-shepherds in shepherding positions. That's that's a scary thing. Um, but those people who are, just to say, those people who have that position, and the people who are members, they have that relationship, and they need to be working towards that. I think you may be hitting on an area of crisis, but I think Whitmer's discussion is that all should be happening at the very start and throughout. It's, it's, you need to be engaged. That's why you engage the strong. You engage all these people because before the, the crisis comes, we should be in, engaged in the congregation well, I agree uh, as, as, much as, as much as you can. There, yeah, look, there, there's a matter of, of particular wisdom, but I think that too often that's used as, as an excuse not to engage when I think we definitely need to be moving towards engagement um, and even past the hurdle of, well, I don't, I don't really know that person that well. Um, that, and that's where we can say our office allows us to enter into this. Um, I, I was appointed as a small group leader for this, or I was appointed as a, as a WLB person for this. So because of that role that I'm playing, I'm going to come in and ask you a hard question. Um, I can do that. I've done that as a pastor before, very recently here and had to um, engage in some pastoral counsel with somebody who I didn't really know very well, but I was able to say, look, I'm a pastor. I'll come in and talk to you about this as my role as a pastor, not as personally how much do I know you as a person, because that personality can sometimes get in the way of what the shepherding role that you're doing. You're doing it not on your own shepherding, but as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ who has called you to shepherd that way. So that's why I'm trying to, I'm trying to avoid that, but uh, the particular numbers, but um, but engage. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't really know if this is related, but is there kind of like an order of operations in terms of, um, say, if I was having, you know, Kelly and I were having some marital issues, would it be wise to go to the elders that are present in our community group first, or like, is there some sort of chain of command that we you would? you'd recommend for people to kind of seek counsel. Yeah, I, I do think that there are certain people you're going to want to, are going to relate to with a particular history. You have a history with them more uh, more than others. Um, and that should already be part of the session's plan of, of casting the net. I mean, we do that. That's why we have elders assigned to every small group, and every member in this church is assigned to a small group, whether they go or not. So those are already set up, um, and you know, Preston and I even talk about dividing up who we do pastoral counsel with. Sometimes it's based upon that, um, but there are times in which 
you got to get over that if that person's not available or if you if there's some reason why it's not the right situation. You, you have to overcome the hurdle of saying, well, there's not anybody that I'm really close to and engage. And, and I, obviously now I want to speak to the opposite side to say is the shepherds have to overcome that as well and say, you know, I really don't know that person. Engage. Preston? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I like what you're doing in this conversation. I think to go back to the question, you keep trying to draw us back to the issue of office and not persons. Yep. And I think that's important in that answer as well as one you gave previously that I do think the office of pastor has a distinct um, you know get, there's a distinction in that calling there's relation to ministry word and sacrament that's different from the distinction of the ruling elder calling um, which is truly a representative of and among the people who has certainly is, is knowledgeable scripturally is knowledgeable about the church and all that but there's a difference between ministry of word and sacrament and ministry of, of say wisdom and guidance and counsel uh, as among them so I think you know what your question is what's the issue and what type of office do I need in my life yeah. on this issue yeah. and elders are invaluable or shepherd leaders, shepherds, I should say, uh, non, you know, whatever we call teaching, they're valuable insofar as uh, they experience life like you do in the life of the church, in a manner that the teaching elder doesn't. And um, but on the other hand, teaching elders have made it a life study to know, you know, the scriptures and the traditions of our church in a way that might need to be brought to bear. But to me, it's not an either or; it's a both and. Yes. That's the key. That's where I was going with this. There's both offices offer unique gifts that I think are needed in the body of Christ, or we wouldn't have both offices. And so, the teaching elders often very. I know the way I work with our own. You know, sometimes I like to get in the front end of something and try to define the issue biblically, put together, you know, a creative biblical plan. But then it's the elder that really is going to flesh that out, that plan out. And then the elder can be a part of even discerning that plan. Right. The point is, the ongoing, the certain, you know, working it out. You know, you, you have two teaching elders or three teaching elders, including Goodville here, for all these people. That's you should have many more. We hope we do have already many more ruling elders. Yeah. So there's a there's a react. That's why I like what you said in the previous answer. The fact of the matter is, you're going to an office. You're going to my bu- a buddy, yeah. and and that office can fulfill its office. It, you know, there are things you would need to ask, things you need to do, but but I can sit down with a family that I hardly know and feel like I can be a very good pastor to them in a pastoral visit. But I would ask certain questions, I'd do certain things, let them speak, da 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 da, frame the issues. But yeah, that's that's a it's an office that you fulfill. And, yeah, and part of what I want to say, granted, with, we want as many elders as possible. Correct. Granted, we want as many pastors as possible, more than Yeah, and part. Part of what I want to say with the, the shepherds um, is that engage and then also know that you have this relationship with the, the pastors to say, okay, I'm, I, I noticed this person's way off there. I'm going to see and evaluate that situation and then say, oh, you know what? You need to see the pastor and talk and talk to them. And so that there may be a sense in which but that, that type of symbiotic relationship um, between 
the, the pastors and the, the staff really I mean, I the same thing with sessions. All the time. Yeah. You really need to go speak to this and, and sometimes and sometimes there's a way that that works the other the other way. But um, it's really that's where we have to know that God has appointed these positions out here to do this under shepherding, and, um, and that's a team thing that we get support and prayer for each other. So part of it is if I'm talking to you as those who are thinking about being shepherds. I want to stress with you, engage, 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 engage. Now, you may not be the final answer on that, but you have to be out there feeding, which I think is really the emphasis of Whitmer's book. It can't be just passive. Somebody else is going to take this. Well, just one little short point yeah. to that, because I think it's a great little conversation. Remember, the way that you're engaging with your pastors and elders is not, mere, not just through these sort of formal lines. I mean, every church yes. social... Every right. men's group, every women's group, retreats, you're after church, there's conversations going on. And the more you participate holistically in the life of the church, it becomes a new question because yeah. you, you really know each other and you're partaking of life together. And it's not artificial, it's not artificial and formal. Those are, those are important too, but most of it is informal and it's just because we're all present together mm-hmm. in different functions. And all these functions we do together are important in terms of that. Yep. Uh, so, you know, I asked, I started out with the, what's your biggest limitation in feeding the sheep? But let me ask you more pointed questions. Can somebody be an elder or WLB member who is well intentioned but not theologically trained? No. Can or should? Can, should. Well, okay, sure. should. Yeah, I mean, should. Yeah. yeah. Is it possible? Yes, sure. But no. should. Why? No. Just define you. Okay, yeah, yeah. All these all these questions are going to have a little bit of that, that nuance. But what's the importance of having training? What's the importance of you sitting in this meeting and not just being saying, oh, boy, that person's personality, they'd be great to fill this. If you don't have any experience with the food, how is it that you're yeah. going to feed? You're not going to know how to feed. You're not going to know what. Can't, uh, should a uh, someone be an elder or WB member who is theologically sharp, and happy to make decisions, but a- unable to invest in people. No. And you could think, I mean, look, it, it, may, it might be laughable to think about that, but you, there are a lot of people and a lot of churches who have these sharp, theolo- I mean, you got, if we were to have a seminary professor in this church, it'd be hard enough to say, boy, you should be, there's some reason why seminary professors are seminary professors, not pastors. I mean, <laughs> If they're unable to actually care about what he's talking about and feeding people, then shepherding is not for you. To your previous question, I was going to ask you to say time. I'm, got, I'm getting there. Really required. I'm getting there. Last night. Yeah. That to me, the biggest hindrance to our having shepherd leaders is that it means you have to make a commitment to choreograph your whole life in order to do it. Yeah. My next question: Should someone be an elder or WB member who is out of town frequently? What is frequently? <laughs> we, if you're talking about feeding and actually knowing what needs to be fed and who needs to be fed, that's a really, really difficult question, no matter how good the person is in fitting that, that mold. Um, should someone who's an elder WB member uh, be that, but are busy with the crisis in their own lives? Uh, everybody on session Every WOB member has crisis in their lives, but how much of that is too much, and, and that they cannot serve in this in this calling? 
all of the, you know, some of these are nuances, there's judgment calls, but I want to, I want to put this in there and say, as you're thinking about this call in your life, and don't, I don't want to undersell it just to sell it, you know? I don't want to say, you know what, it'll be fine, you'll be great, you know, God will give you the strength to do it. Go on. No. <laughs> You've got to assess, is this really, can I really do this in my life? Yeah, Court. I think also the motivation is just a very practical one. When you think about, you know, the business world, for instance, you're going to have um, more of a high bar if you're hiring a CEO than if you're hiring someone who's going to be doing the janitorial work. And I think that it just, um, what it speaks to is how how important is this stuff to us? How, how important is shepherding? Right. How high are we going to set the bar? Yeah. And if we think that the shepherding role of elders and WLB members and, and those things is very important, then we're going to set the bar higher. But if we don't, then we're not going to set that bar. Yeah. And I love your analogy because that plays into my last one. Should someone be an elder W member who's not approachable because of their status or their personality. <laughs> I don't want a janitor who thinks he's a CEO. <laughs> or I don't I mean I don't want somebody who's gonna serve who's who isn't gonna serve because they think that they are this qualified, excellent person because they, they went all through this. I'm playing off that. But I, I think that I think it it is it is important to to consider all these um, as part of the matrix of, of what it means to be in this in this role, and be honest. Point. I think the myth in society is you can do everything. I mean that that is what's being said right now. You can be everything. You can do everything, and this is not true. Can I yeah. Go back to the crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what is important there is how you deal with the crisis. Yep. And what the Lord allows you to learn through the crisis, because I guarantee you, if you decide if you decide that you are called to be an elder and process be an you will have crisis in yep. your life. And, and it's very important to know how to deal with that. That's right. So I, I would disagree that a person with crisis in their life is disqualified. That's right. Yeah. I think it might have been more it's practical so, kind of thing. If you have a parent who's dying or who's, you know, someone's just been diagnosed with you know, terminal illness, and you know that the next 12 months you are just not going to be able well, to already an elder? Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I do want to, I don't, I don't want to get into the, all the scenarios that can play out in that. All I'm saying is that if if life in some sort of way, whether that's work, family, your own health, if that is, none of those things, none of those things scripturally say you can't do it. But mod, the modern myth that you can do everything is also wrong. So I'm, you know, feel the tension between those two things. You, you can't do everything, but also there's no scriptural say that there's, there's these little checks that you you can't be an elder if, or you can't be a servant, uh, shepherd leader if those boxes are there. Maybe another way to frame it is to be an elder shepherd, and, and given what we're being asked to do, it will require that I reevaluate my other commitments, right. even to my family. Yep. My family is going to feel the impact of my being an elder. It is. And we have to trust that God can take care of our family. That God can take care of my mom and dad. You know, to some degree, how far do I need to go? Um, I know for me, being your pastor, and my family in Georgia, um, I, I had to make some real hard strategic questions about whether I could be your pastor 
and fulfill what I hear a lot of Christians tell me I was supposed to do for my extended family. And I had to conclude that, that my being a pastor or an elder requires that at some level I can't do what some people think I should do with my family. Yeah. And, and yet I think I need to do what I should do with my family. The yeah. point is, is that it's not, let's don't have a sacred cow here. Not, you know, the elder's not a sacred cow, but neither is grandma. Yep. And, and so at some level, we have to really make hard choices and ask, where is my role most needed for the kingdom? I mean, to me, my call, and all of our call in this room is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. My call as a father, as a husband, as an elder, as a pastor, as a whatever, son, daughter, all of those callings, plural, are under the singular calling to be a disciple of Christ. And so if that's the case... I think a whole new way to talk about this conversation we're having right now is to say, okay, I'm going to need to be faithful as a disciple of Christ. And situationally, I'm going to have to ask the question, where do I have the greatest strategic value for the kingdom of God and discipleship? And in certain moments it will be, I need to go to Atlanta and and visit my family. But there will be other moments when I'm going to say to my family, you know, what I can do in Atlanta is not as important right now as what I need to be doing in, in New Haven. And I really I really think we need to start talking about life differently. Because it's not like we have a hierarchy of callings that are on the human level. My family, my church, my community, all are valid callings as a disciple of Christ. And I'm going to have to pre-situationally, obviously, yes. decide on a case-by-case basis... When is it? Where am I most needed, and, and my value is most important? Yeah, and I, I think you know we, so we the do. The church is going to fall. We do think yeah. if we don't get more elders and, and, and pastors. There's no doubt about it. We're going to yeah. fall. Yeah, I, I think we do think of life in these spheres of church, family, and work. Uh, the the wrong way to think about that, though, is to balance them. I, I, I hate that term, balancing the spheres, because I think. That's not. You don't want thirty-three percent, thirty-three percent, thirty-three percent, because sometimes life is just going to call and and being called to a particular office sometimes reorients that. There's no. There's never a time in my week when they're all three balanced out in a certain way because they're not always called to say, okay, I worked thirty-three percent in this realm of life. I've got to now work thirty-three percent in that. You know, um, it, it is going to be using biblical wisdom to know that, but the calling to be in a particular leadership role starts to reorient those other things that are going to now have to be connected in a different way. Than in all fairness to those who use the word balance, because uh, it's used a lot by elders here, I think you would agree with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, no, I, I wasn't trying to... 33, 33%. Yeah, I, I, was, I was trying to do a, a misunderstanding of that, is, uh, is oftentimes feeling like, oh, you know, I need to spend more time here because I need to balance it out. Well, I don't, I don't see that as, but I, I'm, I don't know. That was not a shot to anybody. Yeah. And I, I think going at it that way, it really promotes growth rather than comfort. And growth is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it helps us as we um, love, love the people that we're with, because we all do want to be disciples of Christ and we want to grow. Yeah. And whatever, whatever that is, and God. As we need it, and give us our daily bread, will give us enough you know, to do that. And and uh, just just to know that um, it it is all interrelated. I remember um, Rob Hawks gave a testimony one time. Uh, I, th- I can't remember the context, but I think it was a graduation or something. 
but he was saying how much it's meant to his family that he would have to say to his kids, I have to go to a session meeting tonight. And how that made an important impression on him, that they knew that they, he loved them, but he knew that he had to sacrifice. The, the, great, the thing he would love to do is stay home and be with them after a long trip to go to church. And that all of a sudden, he's making this a priority. He's making, and that helped me to tell Kira, you know, Daddy, why do you have to go out tonight? Because I'm doing this for Jesus, and, and I love you. I want to be home with you. I will spend time with you. But you have to know that um, I do desire to, to help God's people. Um, she knows that's a priority. That's a priority. I want that to be a priority in her life. Yeah, she's right one of God's people. Yeah, so yeah. A healthy church is for her. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so that that's uh, that's feeding. Uh, uh, the other two chapters I'll go a little uh, quicker through. Leading, um, he starts that with Psalm seventy-eight. Then he let his let out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Whitmer uses a term that we've used here many times called leading from the front. What does it mean to lead from the front? What is that like? Let's let's not use a metaphor here. Let's actually talk about in practice. What does it mean to lead from the front? And in, in contrast to that, what does it mean to lead from the back? What does that look like? Well, if you're in front, you're going ahead. You're actually doing so that other people can see. You know, they're coming up behind you rather than you being behind them and sort of doing the pushing and the orders and the, you know. Okay. So do as I do. Um, I'm in it with you. I'm taking the same risks that you are. You can, I kind of picture the, you know, two armies meeting in a field, and the generals at the front as opposed to mm-hmm. at the back. Uh-huh. And almost more of it because yes, you're exactly. in the front line. You're not just Precise. part of it. You are yeah. going to take the brunt. You're making strategic decisions in some cases, and then and then acting them out, mm-hmm. to sure that they are fulfilled. Um, for the health of the body behind you, the one to many. Yeah. Initiating versus That's responding. Right. Yeah. And so what I put down here, being proactive. Proactive versus reactive. Thinking about with, and I think this is the hardest thing for uh, for sort of lay uh, leaders, or even you know just the shepherd leader as we we're talking about it is to say, okay, actually have to think, rather than say, oh, there's a crisis here, lead. Be proactive in it. And know exactly sort of where this is going and where that could wind up in, in danger. Um, and sometimes that's going to be real risky. Uh, it will be, it will require boldness. Um, it will require criticism, because that's oftentimes those aren't things that are felt need necessarily. Um, what does it look like to lead from the back? Kevin? Yeah, go ahead. Le- leadership uh, is taking people from one place and getting them to a destination in another place. And when you lead from the front, you're doing it in a manner that the people want to follow you to that place. They have reason to do it. If you're doing it from the back, you're whipping them. You're beating them to, to, to get there, to, to go in your direction, whether they want to or not. And you're doing that because you're waiting for them to go in a wrong direction and you're reacting. Right. 
So you, but, but do you understand what I just said? So you see them heading into the rather than leading them to you're going to the well, rather than leading them to the well, you're going to let them go, and then oh, they're not going. Cut out the other edge. They're not going to where I, you know. And then I so I think I think there's a real thing to be said for out of being motivated. You know, this is the second point I have there: being motivated motivated by love and the well-being of the sheep. That you're leading them in a way that you feel under the conviction of God, that's spiritually healthy, rather than where it's spiritual danger is. And it requires a lot of, uh, you know, it does require collaboration with other leaders in that, but it, it does require a lot of risk and boldness. David, that's interesting. One one position has, um, has shows faith and trust that the sheep will follow. Mm-hmm. The other one assumes that they will follow. Yeah. 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 Um, he gets into this with macro leading and micro leading again starts with the macro although he will argue later that it all flows from the micro Um, I think we default though in thinking more about the macro this is setting a whole congregation vision, mission, purpose and policies on a congregational level work out the biblical purposes of worship, education, fellowship, evangelism. So to step back on the balcony and think about broadly what is God telling us about how to be a church and how to be a church in New Haven, um, that's really important. Um, How to keep this uh, a healthy congregation. Um, How does this get worked out on on a macro level? In the session, um, it's not all handled as a session as a whole. There's there's ways in which you can divide this up. There's committee structures. We can uh, task a committee to do that. Now, when a committee is assigned, the committee doesn't do the work on its own. A committee's job is to do it at the behest of the the session as a whole, and then the report back to for this to session to conclude the, the matter. And so there's still the, the shepherding is done by, by the session, but it's done through the, the committee. Sometimes it could be done to staff, um, assigning staff certain responsibilities and tasks. Sometimes it's having these ministry teams and having them lead it, and then the um, liaison is a representative of the session, not necessarily someone who is in the team themselves. So that, those are the three models that... Uh, that Whitmer puts out on how this gets done on a macro level. And we, you can see that done in different ways in our church. If you're on a session, you will be on a committee and somehow. Um, and we do certain things designated for staff and ministry teams. Micro-leading, um, he talks about being an example to the flock, grace-generated integrity, know and be known by the sheep, lead in participation in worship. Um, that whole know and be known thing and being known as, as someone of integrity and with a godly character that's grace-based um, is huge. Um, it is, it's sad when somebody comes up and says, well, I don't know who the elders are or I don't know who the leaders are in this church. Um, I, I hope that I, you know, I don't hear that. we got to do a better job sometimes of making sure they're identified and up there and, and present. Um, but known and be known, and that and this is in a macro sense. In a micro sense, they have to be known and be known on their own initiative and out in involved in community groups and in um, in relationships. 
um, micro-leading your relationship with Christ, knowing that your relationship is stable, shepherding your family and a commitment to missions in support of the church. Um, I've got a bunch of questions here, and I'm looking at the time. I kind of want to skim through some of them. Um, do you think it's fair for you to be made an example of? He spent a lot of time talking about being an example here. Well, I mean, as I think the Bible says, uh, do as I say, not as I do, right? Right now. Yeah. Paul happens to say, be imitators of me, as I'm an imitator of God. That, that's Paul. Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> And, and, and in that section, in, in, uh, as he says that in Ephesians, uh, it's gospel-centered because he's talking about forgiving one another. As I, you know, uh, be imitators of God as, as Christ forgave you. Um, so there's this sense in which this is gospel-framed. I know you, you agree with this, but I do think it has to be said in this, in this context that there is a sense in which I say, though, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. And... Um, I wouldn't preach a sermon if I couldn't say that. Yep. Because I've failed every one of them. Yep. So but, there's a real sense in which we have to be, as a leader, it's, it's an odd thing. But on the one hand, the scripture very clearly says that a leader, and the qualifications for a leader, I think we're talking about it later, is that he's above reproach. That there's a genuine discernment of authenticity in this person's spiritual life. You know, that should be above reproach. And that there's not some begetting sin that, that is it, it, it captured this person. But on the other hand, you can also turn to Scripture and say, you know, chief, you know all the chief of sinners like Paul, right. um, and I don't pretend to, to be Christ in, in my ability to, to fulfill this, this, uh, this calling. That's why I'm going to worship. Yep, which I would probably always I would probably always qualify that as um, the key to being a Christian Yes, I, I do agree the integrity needs to be there, but, but key to that is the repentance and faith. I mean, is, is being able to identify yourself as the chief of sinners and turn with your only hope to Christ. And um, that's part of what we say all the time. And part of being a, an elder is saying, I'm, I'm able to be that because I'm aware of my sin and I do try to do godly repentance with that, which is identifying it as sin, going to the gospel, receiving forgiveness, and then turning from it. Um, all right. Uh, finally, the last last chapter, protecting the sheep. Acts 20. This is Paul speaking to the elders as he's leading the Ephesians. Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Christ's under-shepherds must protect the flock, must understand and discern who are the weak and the vulnerable, and where we're weak and vulnerable, and what are the wolves. How do you become aware of the vulnerability of the sheep? I know it. Okay. Them. Being thoughtful when you're knowing them. Being a discerning theology. Yeah. Knowing, knowing not only what, you know, where their temptations are, where what might be good for somebody actually might be sin for them because uh, 
because of who they are and where the where they're at. Knowing what particular, you know, he he um, he talks about cultural wolves. What kind of cultural wolves would you say we struggle with at CPC, as opposed to maybe other churches that you've known? What are some of the cultural wolves that we have? Materialism. Okay, materialism. Um, status. Status. Intellectualism. Intellectualism. Achievement. I don't know. These will, it's not to say you don't struggle with it either, but know that this is this is these are the wolves that will devour Christ's sheep. And you've got to protect them from those wolves. Um, what sort of response should elders or WB give when they spot a member or an attender who seems like a wolf? So rather than just it being a concept or an ideology, what happens when it's an actual person? What sort of response should elders, LBB members have in that situation? We need to talk to them. Talk to the wolves. Yeah. Yeah, because they might not. No, I just want to make sure. You could just maybe just think they're a wolf. Mm -hmm. But when you, you know, just because of, you know, your backstory. Mm -hmm. But if they are a wolf, then I'm saying it. Yeah, I mean, look, and Whitmer acknowledges, he says, these are not, these are good-meaning people oftentimes. Yeah. That's key. Yeah. This is not, and, and I think the thing with, you know, engaging them is, you're going to say at the end of the day, you know what, they just mean well. And I come back to you and say, what happens if they're well-meaning, but they're still wolves? Yeah, the key, because that's, that's, if you look at the scripture, that's where all these wolves are coming from. They're, yeah. They're all these people proclaiming Christ who are well-intended. Like, you know, the, the, and yet, so the real key is, will they eventually submit to the authority of the church? Right. I mean, it's one thing to say they're well-meaning, but at some point it's, it's clarified that, no, this is not what we believe is a healthy gospel a position or view or whatever you're doing. It's got to stop. And if it doesn't stop, those are the very people that can mislead a lot of sleep. And that's why things have to happen. And as you... Um, you know, sometimes it's real risky to do that as an individual. It's real dangerous to do that as an individual. What's going to happen when you do that as an individual and go start to engage somebody who is a wolf, do, you know, good-intentioned wolf, doing good-intentioned things? I mean, you yourself are going to get bit. It's, it's, uh, it is risky. And so that, that does also require support and encouragement with each other. And not... not I think we need to be also honest with each other to check where we're misreading things, but but a, a good support and care for each other, knowing that um, we should expect this stuff because it's the gospel at stake, and that's what Satan wants to do. And through well-meaning Christians, people who I would say are in heaven, going you know, but yet uh, are going to be going to heaven because they're, they're saved, but yet through some particular issue could be um, divisive. Yeah. Kevin, that's the most dangerous spot where a leader goes from leading out front to leading from behind. What do you mean by that? When there's conflict. Okay. Uh, here. To lead that person down the right path uh, rather than get behind them yep. and try to whip them to yep. get yep. to that right path. 
which is temptation. But I, but I want to say to you, if you wind up in the session meeting or if you wind up in, a, in sitting around a bunch of leaders trying to discern what happens, if the person is steadfast and um, unrepentant, who is the, the wolf, or, or just not seeing it themselves, um, you got to know that uh, the job to protect the sheep is your job. And to, to shy away from that in the midst of fear of maybe controversy um, will kill sheep. And so just just keep in mind that um, that person may be a sheep themselves who is, and so we don't neglect that responsibility, but just um, just know that there are sheep at, at stake. But that's last resort. It's part of the process the whole way. I mean, I didn't, I didn't make any conclusions on what you do there, but I'm just saying that as you're, you got to keep in mind that protect the sheep is part of your role. And so um, that's, that always gets bloody. No, even no matter if it's in the first step, it gets kind of bloody. Um, but just know that that's part of, that's part of it. Um, Micro-protecting, last thing. Um, he's, and again, he says, effectiveness flows from shepherd's knowledge of the sheep, actively pursuing wandering sheep, um, urgency in the covenantal context. Now, so I, at that point is, uh, you know, that could be really dangerous. And I almost, when I was reading, I'm like, oh, is he going to get really, um, you know, the, the point isn't to say, uh, the, the point isn't trying to uh, get the snakes out of the garden, as it were. There's a book, um, I won't say author, but who frame church discipline like that. Ah, run from that. No. The job of church discipline is not to get the snakes out of the garden because every step of church discipline, yeah, there's the glory of Christ, there's unity of church, but there's also the reclamation. Those things aren't opposed to one another. You do hope that the person you hand over to Satan is going to come back, as Paul gives us instruction to. So, But I think he says it correctly, that we have to understand people who are drifting, um, we have to fear for the fact that they could wander too far um, and take that as a real real um, a real uh, charge that we need to we need to care for them um, we need to we need to see somebody wandering and say well you know what they're just too they're just too much trouble or you know what they're they're kind of drifting I don't know what happened to them they're not worth my time no engage go after them they're Christ's sheep um all right, that's, uh, the, the monitoring is, is also something that would be interesting to, to think about. <clears throat> How do we monitor that? I don't want to take up too much time. Craig, do you have? Um, I think we, we only have a half hour, so maybe I'll turn it over. There's table discussion here for some of these questions. Um, maybe worth talking to, talking to you later, but um, I want to make sure you have enough time. So let me turn it over to you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Last question. One thing that I may assume, but not really clearly, and what we just talked about yes. was that it requires a heck of a lot of prayer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's something I would disagree a little bit that the first response to those situations should be prayer. You know, sure, yes, yes, yeah. 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 I think it was assumed it shouldn't, it's worth saying. It shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't go unsaid that this is not, um, this isn't just a corporation. This is uh, this is a spiritual body, and that and we need to make sure that it's not just keeping 
the leader's peaceful, but but Christ glorified and, and him at the at the head of it. So well said. Some of this is going to be review. So we're going to finish up Whitmer, and then we'll look a little at Sammy Miller. Uh, my handout was was in the back uh, from the beginning. The, t- the top says duties and qualifications of shepherd leaders. Um, it includes discussion on Whitmer first, and then Sammy Miller. Everyone on the same page? Hearing no objection. I'll proceed. Uh, so chapter 9 in Whitmer, is he gives a list, basically, of seven characteristics of shepherd leading in the church. And he does say that we need all seven. This is not We're not trying to get an average of three here or a uh, majority. Uh, he sees all of these as essential. But I'm going to go through all seven very quickly uh, and point out a few important points. Please feel free to interrupt me. Um, first one is biblical. Shepherds seen throughout uh, biblical history, uh, God himself, as we read in Ezekiel 34, all the way through uh, some key leaders, Christ, uh, into the New Testament. It ought to be, shepherding ministry ought to be systematic. It's not going to be uh, uh, off the cuff. It's not going to be, well, whoever I happen to run into or remember. It should be an intentional plan. That's uh, what he means there by uh, systematic, an intentional plan that can be executed. Uh, the third is comprehensive, uh, meaning don't don't leave anyone out. He talks about some churches doing it simply by who happens to attend small groups, uh, which they either didn't know who attended small groups or it was about 60% or so. As we said earlier, everyone is assigned to a community group, uh, if you're a member, whether you like it or not. Uh, I, I thought one point, one important point that he, he mentioned was we should not limit shepherding to those who want it. Um, that's part of the point, part of the command, that the church is not just a voluntary association, uh, but that both elders are commanded to shepherd and Christians are commanded to uh, submit to the church. And so he, he writes that uh, limiting it in this way, doesn't this put the burden in the wrong place? The responsibility to shepherd the flock is on the shepherd, not the sheep. So I found that helpful. Um, Another way to do this is, is as you go through the role to, to be able to clarify and diagnose where the members are at and you provide some categories. Um, number four, relational. I think we pretty much covered that. Uh, number five, basically including all four shepherding functions that were mentioned earlier uh, in the book. Micro-knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting. Elder accountability is number six meaning elders amongst one another uh, through mutual reporting and prayer is one option. And then prayer. I think David just mentioned that, but just realizing how totally dependent we are for on God for any sort of result. Um, praying for the sheep as well as with the sheep. Um, all right, any, any feedback or questions about any of those seven aspects? Yeah. Who would define as the sheep? Is that members only? Is that people? That's the way he's using it. I think that's the way we would use it. But but regular attenders would just approximate. As far as the shepherd's responsibility, I would say it approximates to regular attenders and those. Meaning, um, we don't have an, an official call or responsibility. We would say to those who haven't covenanted with us. But obviously, we're still going to be 
evangelizing, shepherding regular tenders, those who, who come to the church once in a while. Does that make sense? Kind of. The passage that I think you could go to, and it's, in a, it's the shepherd the flock of God, those allowed it to your charge. Mm, yeah. And it's very clear there in Hebrews 13 that the shepherd knows who their sheep are, and the sheep know who their shepherds are, because there is, as you say, a covenantal relationship right. that's been established. And until that covenant relationship is established, there's certainly an influential role that we may have with one another. There's certainly... We're Christians, we love each other, we reach out to each other, care for each other, and all that. But there's clearly a line. I mean, you're getting to the question, this gets, whether it's tender or not, to the question of membership. And it right. really, there is a clear line in Scripture of that there's a covenantal relationship that's established, wherein, in Hebrews 13, there are certain obligations and privileges that come with that. And I think that's what yeah, and it gets to the essence of the visible church, of, of being a part of the visible church versus the invisible church, and, and what does it mean to be a part of the visible church in a particular place versus somewhere else. Um, and also the passage of you're going to have to give account for those you are over if you're a leader um, and realizing who that is. Anything else on these seven? Why don't we do the, the questions quickly, just at, in the committee as a whole, as it were. Um, looking at these seven, what, what do you see as, uh, for you, most likely to struggle with and most likely to do well? Does anybody want to interact with any of them? I could see setting up a great plan, and then the first person that can't you know, get together or... And then the whole plan is not executing it. It was a good plan. Yeah. Good intentions. Funny, I can say the opposite. I think it's easy to neglect the prayer. Yeah. You had a great plan. You were well intentioned. You carry it out. Yeah. But you, I mean, for me, that's a good witness. Yeah. Does it reveal a sense of independence from God? Control? Your own, doing it in your own strength, you think? It's a real struggle thinking that... What is that? It's a real struggle thinking that everything that I do on my own strength. And it's, um, whether it's leading or as yeah. a shepherd type thing or, or going to work or yeah. everything else. Yeah. Working with your family. Jesse? Well, I think it does, it, what this highlights to me is the necessity of kind of like having groups of elders get together as accountability to each other. Because, I mean, we all, I mean, we all have different weaknesses. And so it might be prayer or whatever. Yeah. We need to be reminded of those weaknesses. Yeah, absolutely. So that we can really address this. We don't have those blind spots. Absolutely. So as an elder, I'd imagine you couldn't just be like a solo elder. Yeah, absolutely. There's a plurality of elders. I think um, prayer number seven is essential. I I just know that for my whole life. Yeah. And I God is a person, and if any person is going to engage in my needs, wow, he has to be engaged. Right. And sometimes I run off and do things my 
Absolutely. Peggy? That would be your weakness? Yeah. In other words, like you, you talk about certain things, but like to really encourage them to, um, to think scripturally. Yeah, to bring it back to the, to the biblical yeah, evidence. Just, yeah. Yeah, and I think it, I think the struggle would be to do it boldly. I think a lot of a lot of when I don't do it is is out of a lack of boldness because of, I don't want to sound like a crazy Bible thumper or whatever the reason may be. But but to realize you know that's your that's your call. What are you afraid of? All right, let's let's move on to uh, Samuel Miller on page two and. Uh, the reading that was on CCB, I, I'm including some notes there, uh, that was a sort of introduction of his, and uh, and then underneath that on my handout is, is notes that get more into the warrant, the nature, and the qualifications of elders, which I don't think you had access to, but I'll, I'll mention some of that, and we can uh, discuss it. The introduction I read as, as in many ways a review of what we've looked at, uh, so hopefully this will be helpful. Um, and we can we can look at this, and if you want to be reminded of something we've talked about in the past, we can talk about that now. Uh, and then if not, I'll go through the, the stuff you weren't able to read. But from review from previous weeks based on his introduction. So first, the, just to focus on, as we heard earlier, the ascension, the exalted and ascended redeemer has instituted uh, the visible church. There are church representatives or officers said to designate the church judicatory bearing rule over the body. And then and then he sort of goes through um, different characteristics of the visible church. What is the visible church and what is it not? Uh, and please interrupt me if, if you want to discuss these further. But it is spiritual, not secular or worldly. It includes the global communion that holds the fundamentals of our holy religion, which as we would say, basically is our, our five membership vows. Um, any any church that any church member who could say that is part of the global community, basically, um, it is more than a voluntary association. So a Christian is not free to opt out of uniting to the visible church. It is under one head, the Pope. Is anybody listening? All right, just make sure you're listening. Is under one head, Jesus Christ. Um, he alone is his own vicar. Uh, the church is given a government without which we would embrace the absurd hope of obtaining an end without the requisite means, as, as he says. Um, basically, we cannot accomplish the church's purpose, purposes without a church government. It would be a vain attempt, he writes. Um, and, but then he also makes this qualification that we would, we would agree with. A particular form of government is not essential to the existence of a church, i.e., if Presbyterianism is most biblical, we would still consider the Baptist as part of the visible church, not just an invisible church. We would consider them part of the visible church. Well, Kevin may not, but most most um, most of us would. Um, and then and then he sort of ends by by mentioning since any sort of organized society requires a form of power, we should not be surprised that the church is no different. Meaning, even the YMCA has the power to say. You can be in, you're in on these criteria. You're out on this criteria. You can even be kicked out if you break some certain rules, right? This shouldn't surprise us. So even voluntary associations have this sort of power, um, and the church is 
not less than a voluntary association, but it's more. Um, does anybody want to engage some of this? Anybody need a refresher on why one of these is true? Or we're going to get more specific into the eldership, but. I know somebody has a question. Got all this down. We don't right. want to go on. You're, you're just pros. Okay. Did you say what the <laughs> What's that? Which one? He's the head elder. Why would we consider the Baptist part of the visible church? What would be our criteria for that? Well, they could provide, profess those five. Specified vows. For basic tenets, yeah. Yeah. What are the three marks of the church? Five. <laughs> <laughs> what are the what are the traditional three? Five. <laughs> Sacramental. Sacramental. Vaginal. Vaginal. Well communal, yeah. Yeah. So there's a quite a debate about the Baptists and the sacramental and whether they do have a sacramental right. church. They, they wouldn't call it that. They'd call it ordinance. Today in America we would think that Baptists would be a, a, a key, but that would ironically, historically, that was the hardest one to include. Right, right. Um but they would call it sacraments ordinances. They're they're still performing Lord's Supper and yeah. Baptism. They're doing the sign. They're doing the sign. Uh, three marks traditionally, if you remember, word, sacrament, discipline, or in our terms, confessional, sacramental, communal, and then all of those. If you think of those three, then all of those are defined by gospel centered and missionary. That's where we get our five. And the reason I say five is because even in the, the traditional use of three, it was always that was always stipulated that, it's, that there's the true gospel. Right, right. And so we're just, you know... It's not just sacraments, it's the proper administration it's of the sacraments. It's got to be a sacrament informed by the gospel. Right. It's got to be right. a word. And so, you know, so that's the whole gospel centered in admission right. of the purpose of the church. Right. Not for itself only, but for the world. Right. Recognition. So I, I think it's, even traditionally, you'd see that in there, even if it's not stated as a fact. Right. All right. Anything else? Move on. All right. This is going to be some stuff that uh, I don't think you were able to read, but. Um, so I'll, I'll read through it. First, it's very systematic. First, it gives a warrant, the warrant for ruling elders, then the nature of it, and then the qualifications, and then the duties. Uh, the warrant for it. Uh, he mentions that uh, basically they, they are a carryover from the Jewish synagogue, and we also saw how they, they are rooted ultimately in the Old Testament, uh, where elders were charged with the inspection, government, and discipline. Uh, the presence in the New Testament where we see all over the place the, the appointing of the plurality of elders, the, the discussion of elders, um, the witness of the early church. Uh, this is pretty interesting, especially considering a Catholic context. Um, really up until the 4th century, he mentions uh, different witnesses that, that discuss the role of a ruling elder. Uh, so Ignatius and Ambrose, he cites. Ambrose is a very interesting quote. Um, Ambrose was, uh, he would have been the de facto pope if there was one. Uh, of his day, the Bishop of Milan, he was credited with, not credited, but he was very influential in Augustine's own convert, conversion. 
And uh, he wrote, The synagogue and afterwards the church had a class of elders without whose counsel nothing was done in the church. Which class, by what negligence it grew into disuse, I know not, unless perhaps by the sloth or rather by the pride of the teachers who alone wish to appear something. What's he saying there? Did you get it? Why did this go away? Yeah, why did it go away? He's not sure. Maybe it was because the pastors wanted more of the attention, wanted more of the power. But there was, this is 4th century in Milan, um, this man saying that the elders were, they've been around, as far as we know, since the New Testament. Um, plurality of elders. Plurality of elders, yeah. Teachers, teaching elders need to be held accountable. Right. Uh, he mentions the, the Waldensians and the Protestant Reformers. Uh, so he's, just, he's sort of looking at church history there. And then the, he, he describes the necessity of a plurality of elders for maintaining biblical discipline in the church. Uh, even those who reject the eldership in theory engage in it in practice. Uh, all right, let's turn over uh, to page three, the nature of the office of a ruling elder. Um, Again, a lot of this is going to be a review, but uh, let's just make sure we got it down. The ruling elders are a class of officers from among the private members of the church. We, we may have some qualifications with how he describes this, but um, I found it helpful. He, he described them as serving between the pastor and the people for the harmony of the whole flock as helps to the pastor. Um, I, I think we would, we would totally be on board with that as long as we understand that there's it's not like it's a hierarchy of um, of authority that, that there's still among amongst teaching and ruling elders um, uh, there's a there's a parity of authority uh, but I think his point is saying that the, the ruling elders come from the people uh, whereas a teaching elder could be called from, from all sorts of places um, the ruling elder the plurality of elders serves as barriers against clerical ambition and encroachment as well as aids to clerical work and fidelity. I think that point's been made. Uh, they serve as the church herself in a representative body. Uh, meaning when the, the elders are gathered in the New Testament, there's that sense, if you remember, that the New Testament says the church was there, even though we know it was only the elders who were there. In the same way that when the Senate or, or Congress performs an action, we can say the United States performed an action on behalf um, of us. So that's a representative government idea. Um, and also, the, he makes an interesting point of just recognizing the power um, that elders and leaders have, sometimes implicitly, maybe sometimes when they don't want to, but it's important for all of us to realize it through our presence, advice, friendships, prayers, and examples that we have. All right, qualifications. Can I just pause for one second? Yeah. Um, and this, I'm sorry if this is a um, rabbit trail, but... Is there some connection to the, you know, the elders serving as representatives to the, you know, the larger body? Was that was there some framework that our constitution was like mirroring that? Yeah, yeah, basically. Preston can probably speak to the history, but as far yeah, as far as I know, it was basically modeled after the Presbyterian. Presbyterian is the Federalist. Checks and balances. That's, no, that's what we have against the church, please. <laughs> Jesus is the president, though. <laughs> Obama is Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. 
All right, qualifications. First um, Timothy three. I just wanted to read this. I don't know if we've uh, already read it. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or bishop, depending on your translation, uh, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Is there anything that surprises you there? Anything that stands out? Just Well, I just say like... Those who are seeking the office are seeking a noble task. Uh-huh. Um, part of me is resistant to the idea of people like searching for a platform, mm. and just because it's been so abused in the past, especially with politicians, that you get these great politicians who, the Ken dolls of our yeah. American citizens, that yeah. have gotten that platform. It, it's just I like more comfortable people being called. And selected by the yeah. group, but I, I don't really know. I mean, I think that's more of what he means. He's not saying those who are chasing after it desperately are the. He's saying this is a noble task. I think that's a better understanding of the passage, rather than they need to be going for it ambitiously. There is an ambition that we should have to strive to a noble task, but not in, not in a selfish, ambitious way that we. It's your response to the call. Right. It's something worthy of striving for, absolutely. I mean, there's a, the word aspire there. I, it's interesting word in it, but it's, uh, I do think there's a sense, though, that for those who love the church, supposition number one, supposition number two, the church, that the eldership is an essential element mm-hmm. of the church. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's a noble thing to aspire. Yeah. To this office. Now, I agree with everything you said. There's something nerving about the fact that a person goes, I really need this job. Right. Oh, well, right. I'm worried. I, you've already turned me off. I right. mean, your, your identity is somehow wrapped up in this. Right. That makes you dangerous. But but on the other hand, I think driven you know, out of the conviction and love for the Church of Jesus Christ and recognizing, and I, I keep saying this over and over, maybe my position here helps you see this, but the church really is very fragile mm. because insofar as the church is finding it more and more difficult in an age of where business and other spheres are so dominating our lives. I mean, we have Egypts in our life that prevent, that are really getting in the way of the church having the... Uh, the people that it needs to do what the church has to have to be a church. Yeah. 
So, you know, back to that previous conversation you had with Kevin over there, but it's this, so I do think, I, I hope that everyone in this room is aspiring insofar as God calls them, insofar as, as, as they find that God has gifted them, etc. There's a process for that. The inward, the outward call, all this stuff we'll talk about later. But at the end of the day, this church doesn't exist. If, if, if more and more people find that that we can't do it because of our jobs or our families, mm-hmm. and the way in which those two spheres can become so idolatrous that there is no room in America for a three-sphere calling. It's, it's becoming increasingly a two-sphere calling of church, of family and, and work, and even then families getting butchered sometimes as well. Sure. And you just think about what that means, that that one sphere is becoming the de- almost the obsessively obese sphere in our lives. So I do think that language can be used in a different way of, yeah. brother, if you love the church, and if you believe in the church, something's going to have to give here. You're going to need to aspire. Some of, somebody's going to have to aspire to do this. Because I'm finding it more and more difficult to find people who do aspire to it. Yeah. I think it's striking that our culture would almost balk at saying aspire to something in the church. So we see the church as something that's you know, leftover, if we have time, uh, marginalized fear. But it is something that should be aspired after, prioritized. And yet we're to be humble. Right, right? in a very humble way, absolutely. You know, it's the gifts that God has given you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> all right, just real quickly, I'll wrap up. Um, some of the duties... Uh, he mentions, he, he, he categorizes, he calls them acting in session uh, versus acting privately. What we talked about earlier as acting jointly versus acting severally. Um, a lot of these are, are review. Let me just read the severally part. To set an example, have an eye for inspection and care. And he's using inspection in the sense of shepherding, knowing, knowing what the sins and struggles are of your, of your flock. Visit and cultivate relationships with members. Watch over and instruct children. Evangelize when able. Notice and admonish the strain to extend the usefulness of the pastor. Uh, and then he gets to some great exhortations. I would encourage you, encourage you to read um, both to to elders and to uh, what he calls private members of the church. Uh, basically, saying if someone says, "Oh, who could ever be an elder? This is way too much for me." Um, he's going to say, "Well, there's a sense in which every disciple of Christ is called to a very high calling." That everyone is called to take up a cross and follow him and give everything uh, to Christ. So that that sort of response obviously needs to be nuanced since everyone's not called to be an elder. But if you're a Christian, it's, it's a high calling. Disciple of Christ, he still demands your whole life. This is a really good book. I hope that you were able to read it. If you haven't, make sure you do. It's uh, it's very simple to read. It's it's not hard. It's uh, if you haven't read it, and it's. Very practical, and um, and kind of going full circle, coming back now to what I said earlier, that it was read by the session with an intent to revive, to re- review what we're really needing. Now, I want you to turn to this. We're going to just kind of not skip a few things, but first of all, you have a um, handout that's called, uh, what looks to say up there at the beginning? The life on life on? Well, there's that. I'm going to take you... Uh, let me get to my stuff, sorry. Yes, that one. There we go. 
So, um, duties and qualifications. Yes, yeah, skip over the life and life cycle shift. Believe that. Um, so, if you have a pencil, if you could write on there, uh, you, you, I'm not going to read them. I was going to, but for our sake of time, I'm not. But there's some passages of scripture that uh, go before this that I think would be really important. Um, let me give them to you real quick. Uh, sorry, where is it? I forgot where I put it. Oh yeah, it's over here in my books. All right. All right, so scripture, I call it the scriptural context. Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. 20, 17 through 38. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 19. And then later you'll see I quote 1 Paul, 1 Peter 5. Um, so what I want to do real quickly here, and I'm looking for my glass, there they are, um, is... This is sort of the result of uh, a year-long reanalysis of the session and elder and and uh, WLB, and we have a job description basically divided into sort of a general. You know, we have the biblical mission of the elder, uh, purpose of the job description, general job description, and then specific duties. And we do the same thing with the WLB. Um, I just realized, I don't know about y'all's, but I have two of the same thing. Y'all? No. Oh, no, there, there it is. This is WLB. Yeah, so we have one that's called Session Approved Elders, one that's called the Session Approved WLB on page three. Um, I should tell you that the session's in a process of reevaluating the WLB, um, not, not in the sense of whether we should have it or not, but uh, and the WLB members remember where this began, but... Um, we're, we're really wanting to look at it. Uh, right now, this is what it is, but we're, we're still trying to work. We're always reviewing, as we did with the session, and we're going to be reviewing that as well over the session retreat, um, just to sort of make sure, you know, to, uh, the significant question of the WLB is to what degree are they involved? The issue of shepherding women and all that's not being discussed, really. It's all pretty much agreed upon. It's really how much of the other aspects of the life of the church and government is the women involved is the WLB involved with and um, you know at what level for instance are and it gets down to what are we asking of them to do in terms of you know at what level are they participating with the session when we plan for the ministry of the whole church you know et cetera et cetera et cetera so um, so we're just kind of getting it but this is basically where it is at the point and you know I'm going to just zip through it real quickly um, it's very important because a lot of what's precipitated this, honestly, especially when you get the specific duties, and I've already spoken to it just from back there, but just to remind you that we are, I don't know how to say it loud enough, but I feel that we are entering into a major crisis, and a crisis where um, I, I, it's really becoming difficult for people to envision themselves being elders because, and, and maybe WLBs as well, because of the pressures that people are feeling outside of the church in terms of work, especially. And then some degree family. And to some degree, as a pastor, I find myself having to push back and say, you know, how, at, what, at what point are we allowing idolatry to infiltrate otherwise good institutions? Our work is a good thing, our families are good things, but... I believe that God has given us enough time to fulfill the work of the church as well. 
And so somebody has to see that, right? I'm just saying hypothetically. So, so part of what is driving this is, on the one hand, if you're an elder or, or a woman or a shepherd, let's just call them shepherds, you know, I mean both. If you're a shepherd, how do I feel good about what I'm doing? I mean, I don't mean by that in terms of, we all know that we fall short in all sorts of ways, but, but what's my job and have I done it? <laughs> you know, what's required of me? And interestingly, as much as the general job description that comes right out of our book of church order um, gives us sort of the general, this is what we're to do, um, in terms of the specific things we're doing, uh, what did it ta- how does that work itself out concretely in the life of a congregation, in this particular congregation? And so you'll see that's what the specific duties are meant to do. And it's both, it really was meant to relieve, I mean, we have very dutiful, very conscientious shepherds. And part of this was to relieve them of, I just never feel like I'm doing enough. I never feel like I'm doing this. I, I don't know that I'm, you know, am I doing what's expected of me? And, and it comes down to things, a lot of time issues. And they're all wrestling with So this was our attempt for all of our six to say, okay, look, generally, though we're not making laws, but generally this is what, if you're going to be able to do the general description, in the life of this church, this is what it would have to look like. So I want to specifically look at those uh, specific. Each shepherd elder must commit himself to being actively involved in ministry of the life of life discipleship within a particular congregation. A shepherding plan must be approved annually by the CPC in each session. Um, what we're saying there is, is yeah, you could be a small group leader, you could be a, but somewhere you are, and there's another paper you'll see in a minute, Life on Life. Somehow, somewhere, based on what we've talked about with Whitmer, you can see where it came from. We've got to be involved in the people's lives, and not just in a formal visit once a year, but we've got to find elders that are engaged in what we call life-on-life discipleship. And, and you can just expect that you won't even be nominated until you're already doing that. <laughs> In other words, the whole point is that an elder is someone who's already doing it and now has shown themselves, or a shepherd, to be that person. And so so that's crucial. Life on life discipleship, this is not a board, as we've said. This is not a board. This is a, a, a team of discipleship makers, or disciple makers, or whatever you want to call it. And we're all participating in the life of people uh, and doing that spiritual leadership. Each elder to be the key shepherd, leader, facilitator, mentor of a CPC small group. That kind of gets to number one. A shepherding plan must be approved annually, da 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 um, Again, just what is it? You might be leading a small group Bible study. Uh, you might be facilitator of one of the small groups. You might be a men's discipleship group or, or something. You may have a group of men that you're mentoring and, and there's a plan for that. You know, But it's it's intentional. You'll see when you get to the discipleship. I might should have done it first where all this has come out. But it's coming right out of what we just said in Whitmer. You know, very intention, there's an intentionality. It's systemic, etc. Um, for each leader, elder, to be specifically assigned to the men that God has allotted to his charge, is assigned to his, his small group for spiritual leadership and caregiving, etc. Um, for each elder to conduct a regular elder visitation schedule for all the family units, and we've set that up in a you know, systemic way, to be available to participate in at least 7 of 9 or 75% per year stated shepherd committee meetings. So if you have a job that says, look, I can't get here but half the time to an elder, we're going to say, you know, there is a, there's a narrative here. There's a narrative that's going on. And to be out of that and to walk in and be asked to judge when you're not a part of that narrative is not possible. Uh, And so we tried to, but then we know that there are going to be situations where you can't be there. 
So we're looking at roughly 75%. Again, we're not being Gestapo members here. This is all uh, done in a way that's... I mean, we're not taking roles and all this stuff, okay? Don't think like that. It, it's, it's all in good faith. Um, uh, for see, to participate in at least one CPC session subcommittee, to participate as able, as able in membership exams, to be available and to participate in at least one of three per year presbytery meetings, um, to work on attending the maximum number of events that listed below, a maximal number of events listed below, but at least a majority of the events. Now, let me, this was one that was really, we had to really discuss. Um, one of the things that, you know, if you think of the family model, you know, can you be a good dad or mom and miss the big events in a child's life? So the church, like any other family, has some big events, events that are meaningful, events where everybody's together, events that, and when you miss those events, it's amazing how much you've missed, because you haven't just missed the actual event. It's, the illustration I give is when my kids were in sports or when they had a, uh, a recital, a music recital, uh, and they all did all three of those things. So, you know, yeah, there's the music recital. Watch little Nathan up there freeze as he did. I have this image of him going up there freezing. He's so cute. You just got to know little Nathan. He, he's a very improvised guy. So what does he do? He, he does this thing. He freezes. He looks up. And he gets up and he bows and he walks off the thing halfway through the thing. And we're just all just, we're, but that was a moment in his life. And then what do we do? We, we have a tradition in our family, like in this church, where after every event we celebrate. So we go get ice cream. And then we're laughing and the kids are playing and we're laughing at Nathan. And there's a conversation about music. And there's a conversation about whether he wants to continue to play. All of a sudden you're getting into a pretty nice situation here. And those can't be planned. Oh, they, they're planned, but you can't plan precisely what they are. You know what I'm saying? They're, 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 you're being at the right place at the right time, which makes all this stuff happen. You know, a, a kid who, you know, my, I can think of another ill. I can school in illustration. My son was a pitcher, and, you know, a major game. And how could I miss that? And, he, and I go, and sure enough, he just he plays his heart out, you know, and they lose by a point. And. <laughs> Who's to say? And after that, there's some major discipleship going on. You know? And so what's happening in these things? The, whether it's a special service, I mean, what happens in that Friday night on a Sunday, on the, what do you call them, the uh, Good Friday events? They're, they're, they're significant. You know, because they're, and so, so what you're seeing is a recognition that there's a family here, and we've got to be part of it. You know, now granted, you're not going to make them all. And granted, we have a plurality of elders, and some will make some, and others not all that. But we're trying to be working as conscientious about that. Then you have the qualifications, which I won't go into. You can read them right from our book of church order, etc. Um, and uh, and so that's the that's the elders for the women. Um, same kind of general concept here. We patterned this after Titus, and we patterned it after Timothy three eleven and following. It was interesting when you read, what version did you read? ESV? Because it said wives. That's a very definitive interpretation. But remember, the word is woman. and we So we assume for a moment that that's, at the very least, if it's a PCA deacon, it fits our women, because we believe women should do that as assistants. At the very least. So we're doing it all within our orthodoxy, but we framed this after those two passages. And um, and so here's what you get. Uh, again, uh, the uh, what what do they do? And the W will serve as an advisory subcommittee. This is the part that we're really discussing right now. And how robust is this, and how not? But at, at the W will serve as a uh, 
Let me see here. Let me just let me just read the whole thing because it's a little different. In general, all those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon WLB by way of a godly example. That's the same thing you'd say about elders. It also belongs to WLB to assist the elders and pastors in making disciples of Christ through active involvement in life-on-life discipleship of women at CPC, together with being responsible for the planning and execution of organized activities for women as needed. They should pray with and for the women of the church, being careful and diligent to seeking in the fruit of the preached word among the flock. The WLB will serve as an advisory subcommittee of the CPC session, such as to regularly advise and report the session concerning a, a, a sense as to the general state of the church notice, a sense as to the general state of women in the church, and an annual plan for session concerning ministry to women in the CPC. So um, right there, you know, probably the big issue is what, to what extent is, quote, a sense as to the general state of the church and helping the, and assisting the session in planning for that is that a role of the, of the WLB, not just women? And um, I won't go into the issues there. Qualifications I've listed again. I mentioned where I got them from, and um, there you go. So that's that's sort of the job description of both. Um, any questions about that? Kind of there. Any thoughts? Yeah, follow up. Is that, is that, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were about to say something. Why is the word generally? Where is that? Which where? Women, uh, members must generally be women of strong faith. I don't know. I mean, what we're saying is overall their characteristic is this. Uh, it's just a you know, it's uh, yeah. I'm not sure. But what, what would be a negative to that word? Maybe I can understand the question. Well, generally, a little bit. would sometimes. You know, sometimes. sometimes. Okay, I see. <laughs> I think we're trying to be soft in both sides to say we we're not perfect. But but generally speaking, we're 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 women and men of of spiritual maturity, and I I, I think I can say it that way. You know, I, I know that I fall and you fall, and we're trying to be you know generally, generally, okay, people. Generally. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't exactly. say that on the on the elder one. It doesn't say we generally must. Be well, that's that's just somehow I got rid of it. It was not intentionally. I promise. It wasn't trying to say women. Are, Women have to be less. You're right. So I think, yeah, maybe we can take that word out if you want to do that. Um, any other questions? All in favor? Yeah. All right. So now turn back to the life on life. And um, this just gets a little bit more uh, of the. I could have done it first. That was sort of a thing. But I wanted to get this done before we left just in case. Um, so what's happening here, and some of you have seen this in our training, is, uh, you know, we start off just with a, it, I hope that you'll have a chance to read it. I should have put it in there as a reading. Um, but they're really, we're really trying to distinguish life on life from curriculum on life, as in you're just teaching, life on life from judging life, I'm just a judge in a court. You know, the session is a court. Uh, members of the session do teach. But what we're really saying is there's a mentoring, coaching, spiritual, guiding component to the shepherd ministry that we really wanted to emphasize, and therefore this whole idea of life-on-life discipleship. And I relate it to the sacramental element in the sense of this, that to have the total, this goes back to the thesis of total Christ and our mission at Abano, but it's... Augustine's thesis that the fullness of Christ or total Christ necessarily is transacted when by the mystery of the sacramental presence of the Holy Spirit 
that is united to the very flesh of the people themselves, Christ now, in a mediatorial sense, is in the midst of us. Now, I just led, I just said a loaded, I think, two sentences. But I hope you got it. That's the gist of that par- those paragraphs. Uh, that there's a real sense in which, you know, Jesus is really, if but mediately, mediatedly, not immediate, present among the people to the degree that there is flesh-on-flesh contact. And we mean it quite literally. Flesh-on-flesh. Words, sounds, ears, touch, hug, etc. And you can't be a shepherd and not be in that role. That's that's the essence of this. Um, and I love this quote, you know, uh, Martin Luther. It's a fun little quote here. But just look at, generally speaking, Martin Luther aptly summarizes the sacramental implications of Christ's flesh mediated in, with, and through the body of Christ as follows. Quote, It is our duty to let the benefit and the fruit of the Lord's Supper become manifest, and we ought to show that we have received it with profit. We at present see it received throughout all the world in so many celebrations of the Mass. But where do you see the least fruit following from it? Now this is the fruit, that even as we have eaten and drunk the body and the blood of Christ, the Lord, we in turn permit ourselves to be eaten and drunk. And they and say the same words to our neighbor. Take, eat, and drink, and this by no means in jest, but in all seriousness, meaning to offer our, yourselves with all your life, even as Christ did, with all that he had in the sacramental words. As if to say, here am I, given for you, and this treasure do I give to you. What I have, you shall have. When you are in want, then will I also be in want. Here, take my righteousness, life, and salvation, that neither sin, nor death, nor hell, nor any sorrow may overcome you. As long as I am righteous and alive, so long shall you also be righteous and alive. These are the words he speaks to us. These we must take and repeat them to our neighbor. Not by the mouth alone, but by our actions, saying, Behold, my dear brother, I have received my Lord. He is mine, and I have more than enough in great abundance. Now you take what I have. It shall be yours, and I place it at your disposal. Is it necessary for me to die for you? I will even do that. The good, the goal placed before us in the Lord's Supper is that the attainment of such conduct towards our neighbor may appear in us. Isn't that amazing and powerful? And, and to some degree, um, not some degree, that, that's really what we're talking about by life on life. It's not just proclaiming the Lord. Life on life means we become the mediatorial, fallible, yes, presence of the Lord in someone's life. And to do that is coffees and prayers and small groups and things of that nature. Now, I go on and talk about this in this little paper, and you can read some more of it. Um, just a phenomenal pastoral theology is by Martin Bucer and uh, has some wonderful things here. Again, I encourage you to just go back and read it about shepherding. And he uses the metaphor of the shepherd. He thinks the metaphor of shepherd, just like Whitmer does, is the primary biblical metaphor for, for Christian leadership. And, and I think they're both right. Um, it really is, as we heard today. It's Old Testament, New Testament's all over. Of course, that comes out of an agrarian society, God condescending to that agrarian society. Most of us aren't shepherds today. We don't know shepherds today. It wouldn't be wrong to translate shepherd to, I don't know, what would be a coach? Coach. Probably coach, parent. Well, parents would have been there as well. They certainly have the father metaphor. But but something that deals with the vocations of life that we could relate to. And 
and brings in all that stuff. Probably you're right. I think something like a coach or a mentor or something is getting close to it. Um, but it's more than that, isn't it? The shepherd has a lot, you know, this protecting thing. It's, it's hard to find a metaphor quite as powerful, honestly. Um, so anyway, just read, think through that. But that's what a job description should be. Think, if you're thinking about a job description, that's what, we're, that's what we're trying to find in a job description. What does it mean? And how do you put that into concrete terms in our lives? Um, here we, we uh, then, then on page three of this whole thing, I review, I have some things there that, um, oh, it's interesting, I put in there talking about the macro decision that the church makes and whether we do small groups, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards, it's very interesting, you know, this is a major part of the revivals, uh, that there was a structure for small groups, and uh, so this is not a new thing. But again, don't, don't think of small groups as I wouldn't call those an, an element. It's today, people go to church, and if they don't have small group ministry, they say, oh, you can't go. And that's not an element of, of our polity, remember. It's probably a good way to do it in modern life. And I'm all for it, as we know. But let's don't, let's don't get too crazy here. You know? Small, you know, a church can be a church without small groups, but there has to be some method of life on life. Some method for people to be doing it. It could be prayer societies. It could be all sorts of things. Um... Ecclesial discipleship explored. I'm not going to review this. It's pretty much, uh, you've done this, the positive, prevenient, remedial, all that kind of stuff. Um, going back into this uh, discipleship thing, I like this little quote from Randy Pope. Life on life discipleship is not curriculum on life. We believe that discipleship happens because of relationships, not because of books or materials. There's something organic that takes place in the discipleship, even as one works through engineering or engineered curriculum content. Although there is a learning component to discipleship, the focus on living and sharing truth, not merely learning it. That's what we're trying to get at. And, and clearly you see that in Whitmer. Clearly now you see that in our job descriptions. That There's got to be that. Um, theological vision, um, you know, I won't go through all of this. What, what's interesting here is a little bit of a summary of Whitmer here, but some, you know, we say, okay, what's crucial about discipleship? And we, call, we do some of the same things you heard earlier. It must be intentional. It must be whole life. It must be confessional. It must be relational. And it must be ongoing and developmental. Now, what do I mean by developmental? Um, we recognize that discipleship, there is a developmental... I'm thinking of like early childhood, middle, you know, adolescence, etc. While some ministries, and I was a part of one in college ministry, that went to great extremes to try to discern what are the developmental cycles or, or stages of Christian life. And I was one that had what they call the seven phases of Christian growth, etc. I'm dubious about those. Uh, I don't think that the scripture gives it so systematically. But I do think the scripture acknowledges that there, there's a developmental. I mean, you know, I'll give you some passages here that illustrate that. Where, where, And this has been very helpful to me. Because even if I can't prescribe as necessarily good and necessary inference what exactly those are, I think there's a general pattern of Christian growth that you see in Scripture as well as in, uh, in, in just experience. And so I try to articulate that a little bit here for you in five. And it's you know it starts of course with a gestation phase or repentance and faith, um, and you know the reason this is about, why do you think this is important? And parents, you would know this. Why is this important? Because if you expect something of a two-year-old that they really can't ride a bicycle, which yeah. I found out, 
that choosing a two-year-old Jeff, they just can't afford coordinate themselves as much, then you're going to harm... You're going to exasperate them. Yeah. This really is a form of exasperation. And you're going to harm them. They're not going to develop in, in a right way. They're going to have some, some some deformations because they've been put here. You heard that a little bit earlier. Do not let a young convert be a, a lie. You're going to deform this poor guy or girl. You know, They're going to be asked to do things that's going to really mess them up because they haven't yet experienced what they needed. And that's probably one of the great causes of burnout is we confuse zeal with maturity. We can, you know, we confuse someone with some great people skills with maturity. I mean, I, I've told the story before. I, I just thank God that a very crucial moment in my life, young life, you know, I I realized I needed to be discipled. Didn't know what it was. Contacted somebody that I knew who he was. Said I need to be discipled, and he said, you know, and I've been a year and a half Christian. I had a fifty member Bible study that had been gathered from the fraternities and sororities. And he says I'll do it under one certain you know circumstance, and that's it. You'll give up. You'll give me that Bible study. <laughs> I'm not going to discipleship disciple you as a young convert leading a study. It's 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 a mutually exclusive thing. You can't do that. And I did it. I just, without even hesitation, said, take it. It's yours. I want to be a disciple. And praise God, you know, that happened. I guarantee you, I wouldn't be here today. Because I was not prepared. It would have, it was already just going to destroy me. I was not prepared spiritually. And so, uh, that, this is what this is. Repentance and faith. Enlightenment and guidance, you know. So, you know, I won't go through this very deeply, but just, it gives you some categories. And the reason that's important is this life on life, Component is that we get into people's lives and we discern where they are in their life, what we need to be emphasizing, when, and how much we are to ask. But it goes through this progression. I don't have time. I don't even, there are time constraints. I don't, it's not like you say, okay, year one, repentance of faith, year two. Sometimes these things go in a long time. And I don't even want you to see these as absolute steps or something. I'm just not trying to do that at all. I just want you to get in your head, oh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That is a really different place in your Christian life. It's a different place to be training for ministry than it is to be repentance and faith. It's a different place to be now solidly a Christian, but man, I am at a stage of having to learn the Christian basics. You know, how do I walk? How do I live? What do I do? You know, and some and I I'm really bad at this, you know, because I just immediately walk in there and I forget, you know, that I've had 35 years of this or 40 years, whatever it is. And I, I think sometimes, every once in a while, especially when I get with my kids and with their friends, I'll hear myself and I'll remember, now what, what would I have heard if I had been saying this stuff? I'm sure I do this to you all the time, you poor people in the pulpit. You know? And it's like, God, you know, I, I would just be horrified you know, if I'm hearing some of this stuff two years into Christianity. And you just pray God's grace. So anyway, that's what this is for, is for you to think about these spheres and where they are, reevaluate. This number four to me is what I call adolescence. And um, I really do believe if I could have stopped on any one of them, number four is it. Because I think this is something that, that we don't quite know what to do with in the life of the church. What I call the adolescent Christian. There's someone who, who became a Christian, they grew, they were discipled, they even got involved in ministry, but all of a sudden they're starting to see the seamy underside of Christianity. They're beginning to see the issues that are really difficult, and they're getting tired. People are expecting things out of them. It's becoming a little mean. You know, Christianity can be mean. And being a leader with people's expectations, people who are down here at number one and two can abuse people who are at number three because they don't understand what number threes are going through, you know. 
And they assume they're all in it for bad motives because that's what everybody, number one, would think coming out of the world. If you're a leader, you, don't, you have a bad motive. You, know, you can see where this is going, right? And so you get these four. And I think I do have a particular sympathy for number four and wanting to develop something for that in my mind. What do we do with people who are, man, is this stuff for real? You know, this is not working out and, or something. So read that one and think about it. And then worldwide vision and ecumenism. Uh, what I mean by that is, they're getting out of their local context and beginning to see there's a bigger picture here, a bigger world, and and their and how they are engaged with that in terms of their Christianity. So this is just some thoughts, but um, I'm going to stop at that. Any questions though about anything we've said today? We, we're through officially. I do want to ask one question about our next meeting, but are there any questions you want to ask? All right, I know you're tired. I am too. Um, re- try to take some time to read over this. Last question then is this summer. So we've got June, July, and August. Um, uh, are we, the, I believe, if I, I tried to look now, I'm trying to remember my memory, but I think this is the week that we're doing Impact Week. Does anybody want to check that with me that's got their thing? Craig, you looking at that? It's the 20th to the 25th, I think. So, so I think we're really close Almost to that. Almost last week of July. Yeah. So what, it's, it's predictable that we might not do July or August or June is my point. I want to try to figure out how we're doing. I could. Uh, July is not. July we, we're on the 11th. This is supposed to be the second Saturday, right? Yeah, we're on the second. Second July 11th is still a week. I think I would propose, if you're open to this, that we meet on the July 11th. That we can't, but we don't meet in the June. Give yourselves a full month because of the of the way that schedules are going, graduations and all this other stuff. But I could, we could keep going. But but I just want to make sure we're going to be here. I see a lot of people aren't here today. And I just want to make sure we get people in here. By the way, this is a kind of defi- a definitive turning point. Uh, what we're going to go into after the week, this week, is more into uh, uh, the five marks, ecclesiology, and, and, and how. But they're big issues. Every one of those have. What we're going to be doing is at each one of those confessional marks, we're going to target an issue, uh, at least one issue that's presenting that the churches. This is where we're actually training you to be part of leading this church in terms of issues. So we'll address certain issues that are going on both in the life of this church but also in the life of the greater church. So it's a kind of, um, well, you'll see. It's uh, What are those controversial issues oftentimes that we need to get our heads around if you're going to be a leader here and how we talk about that in church. So it's a very important thing. But anyway, it's a little different. We're moving off of the just elders, shepherd. It's more looking at issues that elders and shepherds now need to be familiar with and conversant with in those areas. So with that being said, what do y'all want to do? For some reason, the CBC calendar for June has us as June 27th. Hmm. Yeah. When's General Assembly? That might be why. We might change the that General Assembly. Uh, session or session retreat, maybe. General Assembly is June 8th to 12th. Yeah, that's probably what it was. I think it makes sense just to do July. Okay, do July. And then no August. And then we'll see about August. Maybe, maybe not. Let's play August by here. But y'all want to keep the July then. Everybody agree with that? July, March, June. July. What, what day is that? 11. It's already it's already on the map. Yeah. July 11th. Yeah. Cancel June is what you're saying. We're just saying cancel June. All right, so ordered. We'll do that. And then um, when it comes to... I'm going to have to review. Remember I said uh, upon revision, I'm going to review what's next. So wait for an announcement 
uh, to let me review what your next reading assignments are. I don't want you to read until I've had a chance to go back and review all that. All this other stuff was set up in advance, knowing that we'd get to this point. But I want to make sure I look at that other stuff, okay? All right. Well, may the Lord bless you. Amen.